And he said, um, we've hit it three times, and every time we hit it, they re-fortify it with new fortifications. And the, uh, it's, it's become a, a game with the drug dealers. Before we even get these people booked in, the drug dealers come back, fixed whatever we broke, and they're, they're up in operation again. And he goes, a couple of my people got hurt, so i like for your, your folks to handle it. So SWAT looked at it, and we made the decision that uh, we're going to hit it in the daylight. And these drug dealers, they had uh, put a cage on the outside of the door, a cage on the inside of the door, had a steel door, had cages on the inside and the outside of the windows. Because every time narcotics would hit it, they'd do something additional. And plexiglass on the, on the windows so you couldn't get in in the steel garage door. We... Uh, we decided the best way to do that was to fly in the helicopter. So we had our gas man up in the helicopter with barricade penetrating rounds. We were firing through the roof because we, we didn't think it would go through the, uh, the plexiglass windows. Plus, it might hit the cage. And so he's up there distracting them in the helicopter, fly, firing the barricade penetrating gas rounds through the roof of this house. We had gotten two backhoes from the city of Dallas, and uh, we backhoed where the windows were and just tore huge gaping holes into the side of this structure. This uh, bent-over, frail, little old African-American lady came walking up to us. It was a hot summer day. She came walking up to us. She had a big tray filled with ice water, glasses. She said, Sergeant Kowalski, trying to look at We wondered where you went. We missed you out here. Thank you for coming out here because that house was ruining the neighborhood. Would you and your men like some water? It's a noble profession. We're taking care of the good people out there who want us. And they want us to do our job and protect them from the evil that's out there. And everybody in this room has seen the evil. We've seen it, and uh, we know that we're that thin blue line between the good citizens who've never seen it, and we're that thin blue line that keeps them from seeing and experiencing that pure evil out there. And I, uh, I really admire everybody puts on a badge and a gun and goes forward every day to do a job, because those are heroes. I mean, just that act alone makes them a hero. You're listening to the ATO Bridging the Divide podcast. Brought to you by the Assist the Officer Foundation. Since 1999, the ATO has given assistance to the first responder community. And now we want to give them a platform to hear their incredible stories. We also want to hear the stories of the many people that support us. Our community is small, but it is strong. We have differences. We don't always agree. And we all make mistakes. But together we can grow we can heal and we can learn from those mistakes and together we can bridge the divide welcome back ATO listeners I want to give a quick shout out to fangirls Jill Haining and Lee Lashley for being big ATO supporters and supporting our podcast thank you Before I welcome on today's guest, I want to welcome on a very special guest co-host. He was in episode four. He spent four decades of serving the city of Dallas, Lieutenant Bob Owens. Bob, thanks for coming on. My pleasure. Thank you very much. I knew you were going to miss today's guest. Y'all go way, way back. Oh, yeah. Yep, we do. 
He's, Pers- a, he's kind not, of a rookie, but I, I'm, I'm not that the, old. He's uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you still? I, I think you have a, a painting like Dorian Gray uh, painting yes. aging somewhere, and you oh, still look great. The hair used to be black. <laughs> yes. So <don't> <laughs> yes, it did. Our special guest today has an incredible background in leadership. His law enforcement career continues to this day with over four decades of service, just like Lieutenant Owens. He started in New York in 1975, eventually making his way to Dallas PD, which I'm sure was a huge culture shock. He served in several divisions, including patrol, internal affairs, training, communications, and the tactical unit. He moved to the ranks of DPD and became deputy chief. After leaving DPD, he went to the city of McKinney, which is a suburb of Dallas, and became the police, uh, chief of police, which he saw the city and the department grow by three. He was later promoted to chief in Prosper, which has also grown threefold since he arrived. His leadership since I've been on the department is second to none. I still hear stories of Chief Kowalski going back to when I was a rookie in 97. And everybody in this room has had a story of interactions with you. And everybody in this city that's worked under you, generations of police officers, are still touched by your leadership. You definitely left a footprint in the city of Dallas. Chief, thank you for coming on. Thank you. Thank you for asking me to be here. and Thank you for those sentiments. Bob told me to write all that. Yeah, no, Doug, actually, I think Doug wrote that, didn't he? <laughs> My publicist did. That's right. You ready to get into this? Sure. All right. You started in Dallas, Texas in 1977. Yes, sir. And me being a big Star Wars nerd, that's the same year that Star Wars New Hope came out. So yes, that's only a- it was just called Star Wars at that time. You're right. <laughs> <laughs> I remember seeing it when it came out yeah. in the theater up there at North Park Mall. Oh, really? Mm-hmm. Hey, it pro- when did North Park open? It wouldn't it probably would, wouldn't open that long. Well, it was in six. Oh, was it sixty? Sixty. Okay. Yeah. The, the old theater or the new one? The outdoor theater or the indoor theater? They had an outdoor one back then. Yeah, wow. it was outdoor originally. It was by standalone, which was a big mistake they made when they put it inside. Right. But yeah, it's it's been inside for quite a while. Well, coming from New York, why did you pick Dallas PD and come and decided to come on south? I'm, I'm I've got my reasons why i think you did it but i'm gonna want to hear from you so i come from a long line of uh civil service and public safety uh really proud of my my family they were all in the fire department though the fdmy uh also very that was my dad my uncles uh and i was raised at home by my mother and father and my mother was a stay-at-home mom so it was the old-fashioned you know 1950s 60s uh Cleaver family, like you would see on TV, and uh, I wanted to go into public safety. Also, that was uh, that was what I grew up with. Uh, my uncle became the uh, fire marshal in uh, New York City, and uh, they didn't do building inspections. They were actually the ar- arson investigators. And suddenly, when he went from a ladder company to the arson investigations, the stories became infinitely more interesting to me. So. Uh, I got very interested in police work, and um, when I turned 21, I t- I'd taken the uh, New York City NYPD test when I was 20. 
I scored high enough. They called me as soon as I turned 21, and the first day of the academy, they said, well, we got bad news and good news. And the bad news is the mayor just declared a freeze on hiring, and we can't pay you folks. The good news is if you uh, go ahead and go through the academy, become auxiliary policeman, which is a lot like a reserve or reserve light, and um, you'll be the first people we hire back. And so I said, okay, finished my college degree, said this will work out. Two years later, the uh, freeze became a layoff, and they laid off 3,000 to 5,000 police officers. And, uh, you know, doing some quick calculations, I realized I was no longer at the top of any rehire list. I was way near the bottom. So uh, I started looking across the country, and uh, I was used to the big city, so I wanted to go to another big city. Uh, After looking at several of them, uh, Dallas had the best program. It really did. And I thought it was a rising star, and I said – you know, the bad news is I, think I had to leave home. The good news is when you have to leave home, you can pick where you want to go, the, the, you know, the community, the climate, the, everything. And so I, I set my sights on Dallas. I was lucky enough to get jo- the job and get hired in 1977. Started the police academy uh, out at the old academy on Shorecrest Drive, which was right next to the runway at Love Field. Wow. That was one of the reasons I, I thought you'd just get for the climate. But you came down and got to this Texas heat. Yeah, I got here in July. I interviewed oh, in March, and God. I said, wow, this place is great. And then I, I, I arrived in my 1972 Pontiac Le Mans with a dark vinyl interior and no air conditioning, and I realized may, maybe I should have done a little further research. Yeah, three heat strokes later, and then you realize I need to go back up north. What size the, uh, was Dallas PD when you hired on? How many sworn? 2,000 officers. Oh, wow, okay. Not a lot's changed since we've we've grown, but our department is, you know, kind of maintained. Where did you start patrolling Dallas? After I graduated the police academy, I was assigned to the Southwest Division out there in Oak Cliff. I trained uh, initially in, well, the numbers then were the 420s. That was uh, along Lancaster Road, which is now South Central Division. And uh, and I trained the 450s, was, uh, was over by... Uh, 67 and uh, going all the way down to the Redbird Mall. That's what it was called mm-hmm. then. Then when I was permanently assigned, it was up in the 440s, and the 440s had that uh, entire area north of Illinois all the way up to I-30. So basically, um, I was around Texas Theater. That was eventually my beat. It was a it was good, very diverse neighborhood, and I, I really enjoyed working there. I learned a lot. For our listeners, Texas Theater, that's where Lee Harvey Oswald was captured after the uh, Kennedy assassination. Yes. And, and also, El Ranchitos is right down the road, yes. which is my favorite places. <laughs> and, and for your listeners, I'm old, but I wasn't there when Oswald was apprehended. Nope. <laughs> we we did have a detective on that, that handled Oswald from that day. <laughs> um, it's, I actually wanted to go to Southwest because I grew up there. And while you were starting uh, Southwest Patrol, I was actually living on Kernwood over there off Kernwood oh, yeah. and Polk. I went to Bertie Alexander, that elementary that was over there, and my brother wow. went to Carter. Yes. So, yeah, um, I have a lot of ties to Southwest as well. But it wasn't – Southwest is, wasn't as bad as it is now, though, like that area we no, lived in. No, I don't in. think so. It, it, was, uh, it was really diverse. Uh, we had um, – the population was diverse. We had uh, uh, white people. We had African-Americans. There was Hispanics. We had rich. We had poor, you know, yeah. rich people up in Kessler Park. Uh, we had businesses. We had residential areas, apartment complexes, and the hospital, Methodist Central. So – we were real busy with police work. How big of a culture shock was it for you to come from New York down to Dallas, Texas? And what was the biggest thing that jumped out as you? Is just a 
damn, I'm in fish out of water of where I grew up. A lot of folks out in Oak Cliff didn't like talking to a damn Yankee. Okay. <laughs> so the biggest culture shock was uh, I had to uh, knock off some of the real rough edges. And uh, when people asked me where I was from, I couldn't tell them New York City because that would start, start a fight right there for no reason at all. So eventually my, my trainer on Deep Nights told me I needed to tell people I was from Narlands. Narlands. And I said, Narlands? <laughs> I said, you mean New Orleans? And he said, never say it that way. <laughs> so I'd say Narlands, and then years later, when I finally made a trip there, I realized a lot of those people do sound like they're from Brooklyn. So uh, that yeah, became yeah. acceptable. What I, I got a question. Uh, what size, I always heard about how large the New York Police Department Academy classes are. What size was your class up there, and then what size was it in Dallas when you came here? Yeah, it was 250 in New York City, and it was uh, 33, and that was a big class in, in Dallas. <laughs> wow. 250? Yeah. Wow. Okay. Were they all in one room? I, I just, because we were both over basic training right. for a period of time, and I was always interested how you manage 250 people yeah, it's for pretty, DT it's, and driving and shooting. And did you break the class up? Yeah, or? we were broken up, kind of like the, the FBI breaks okay. everything up into sessions if you go to the FBI National Academy. And uh, so there's times you are brought together all in one big group, and then there's other times you're broken into different sessions into smaller classrooms. When did y'all meet, Lieutenant Owens? Oh, gosh. Um, do I, I guess narcotics? Was yeah. that the first time? When, when I was the uh, – when I went to narcotics, there was one lieutenant in narcotics. And we had – I had six squads, I believe, uh, six sergeants. With a, and I had a day shift and a night shift. And I worked um, days, and I had half my people work days and half work nights, and they rotate every month. And they, and that's about the time crack hit. And so they're throwing people at me. I've got, I, I think I might have ended up with 10 squads by mm -hmm. myself, and I'm working, you know, I don't even see half of them for a month. And so I'm like begging for help, and uh, we need another lieutenant over here, and we need to have one on days and one on nights and they brought uh doug in to to uh be the other lieutenant yeah and they split us into two units and uh, i had four squads and we rotated right. myself and my squads would work one shift either days and then he'd be on evenings and the next month we'd rotate it back over and and y'all remained friends since that's when y'all met in narcotics and y'all just built on your friendship since right. then okay ever since then and you were a lieutenant when you were in narcotics? Yes. Okay. Well, and I came back again later as a captain, but when okay. they made it its own division. Okay. Um, you went up the ranks in DPD. What was the rank you enjoyed most, and what rank do you feel you left your most impact on? That's, uh, you know, I enjoyed pretty much all of my assignments. I enjoyed being a sergeant, and I was at Southeast Patrol. Um, I got drafted to Internal Affairs as a sergeant, and then uh, I made lieutenant, went to the academy. That was another good assignment. And then I got drafted back to internal affairs as a lieutenant and uh, was able to go over to narcotics and work there. I enjoyed that assignment. Uh, when I made captain, I was over property crimes, another good assignment. Then I was back to narcotics, another good assignment. But then I was given the opportunity, and probably out of every place I ever worked, I got to be in charge of the SWAT team. We're going to get into that. Yeah, And that's, that was the best job yeah. I ever had. Wow. Uh, great, great group of people. 
lieutenants mentioned the drug wars in yes. narcotics, and y'all were there right in the beginning of it, and in you know, call them the Jamaican drug wars. Can you kind of describe that that time and what was going on in the city and what uh, what y'all saw from a narcotics perspective? Yeah, I can. I'll let Bob take the beginning okay. of that because he was in there on the Jamaican Rum Punch One operation. I got there for Rum Punch Two. Yeah, it was uh, it was wild. It was when when I first got there. Like I said, the, the division was called the Vice Control Division. Mm-hmm. It wasn't even narcotics, and so Vice was kind of our parent group, and narcotics was kind of the stepchild of Vice. Which, of course, now it's just the opposite. There's not not that many folks in Vice, and a lot of people in narcotics, but. Uh, the crack hit at that point, the crack epidemic, the Jamaicans, mostly at that point, they were selling narcotics. And the biggest thing with them is they were so violent and they would barricade their houses. Uh, I mean, seriously barricade them where it, it was very difficult to get in. And what they're trying to do is delay you enough so they can flush the drugs. And then when you get in there, there's, you can't arrest anybody. Uh, so, uh, we they were just like I said they're throwing people at me and uh, we were we before we used to have it where you know you'd bring two officers two detectives over you put them in a existing squad until they got trained then you bring two more and then and then finally they would form their own squad it took about a year well they just like started throwing squad hey here's a sergeant and six detectives and it it was I mean we were. We were very busy, and it, we weren't used to that because we had. When I got there, most of the detectives uh, did rodeo. Can you explain that, that? They, they, uh, I don't know what you call. It. They, they rode in rodeos. It was a big thing. That, really, Dallas yeah, Police Rodeo Association. Yeah, the rodeo association. Oh. They would do not not big rodeos where you can get really hurt, but the small rodeos. But they're all cowboys. I mean, uh, real cowboys, and so. They didn't really work undercover, and they were pretty much all Caucasians. Oh. A few exceptions. I know one of one of my better detectives I ever had was Rick Watson, who, by God, Rick, you need to retire, but he's still here. <laughs> yeah. he, he rodeoed, too. He rodeoed, too, yeah. I know that. What event? Yeah. I, I mean, if, And if anybody ever rodeos, it is, it's not easy. And we got people hurt all the time. But anyway, so because with the Jamaicans and the crack and everything, we had to get a lot more people. We had to diversify a lot more than we Oh, yeah, of course. And then it became, you know, hey, vices, uh, you know, and they did the same thing they do now, alcohol and prostitution and pornography and things like that. And and we did, you know, the felony crimes. And so we we got a lot of folks in there, and we got SWAT involved in – they were running a lot of our warrants because we we just physically couldn't do it. A lot of the officers we had, and so uh, we had SWAT. But even SWAT, you know, I used to say during the the peak of the drug wars, you know, SWAT's talking about how many warrants they ran, but we ran about three to every one they ran because there was just so many. It was every day, mm-hmm. two shifts every day. I don't know. Would you say, Doug, ten a day? Yeah, especially towards easy. the end of the week, every day. And that's us and SWAT. SWAT would get the more difficult ones, right. the more violent ones, the more barricaded ones. But uh, we were still running a lot of warrants. And then they, finally they brought Doug over to help me out and, and help the cause. And we did a lot of 
major operations back right. then. Well, the murder rate climbed drastically right during that yeah, whole. It went in, it went insane. Uh, so when I first came to came to Dallas, uh, you know, the big crime problem was really uh, marijuana and. Uh, Teas and blues. Yeah. I don't know if you remember that. It was a heroin substitute. Oh. oh. And, uh, but then, uh, you know, cocaine was a problem, and cocaine became a problem, uh, but it was kind of an upper-middle-class, upper-class problem. Party drug. But once they discovered how to uh, uh, smoke it with the crack cocaine, it, it was everywhere, and it kind of went crazy. The Jamaicans were uh, controlling the drug trade here. Uh, Rum Punch One that... Uh, Bob was in charge of. Uh, I, when I came over, I got rum punch too, and we it was a joint operation between us and, and mostly ATF. DEA showed up for the press conference, <laughs> but uh, uh, but it was mostly us and ATF and uh, uh, the Jamaicans. It, the, the murder rate, uh, leading up to your question, the murder rate. The murder rate was a direct result of turf wars between the Jamaicans and the Crips and the Bloods, so who was going to control the drug trade? In South Dallas. And at that time, the Crips and the Blood were just starting to rise, too. Right. And it was just, mm-hmm. the, oh, I can't imagine that. But there was always drug, uh, right. always yeah. drug gangs. Mm-hmm. And, right. You know, I mean, there was there was drug gangs, you know, since the 20s. Right. So they the Jamaicans are trying to come in and take over, and they're mm-hmm. doing it with violence. You know. Well, that that movie Colors that came out in 80, that, that kind of like highlighted the Crips right. and the Bloods and that kind of, mm-hmm. and you had a bunch of wannabes. Uh, around Dallas because when I get by the time I got to I actually went my freshman year of Sunset High School over there at Southwest and it was eight up with gangs and yes. they had so many damn offshoots of G-Men Ducky Boys I mean all these weird you know offshoots of Crips and Bloods and a bunch right. of wannabes I don't even think they were in gangs they just put it out there that they were yeah, it's funny you mention that. I always, I always blame that movie because I never oh, heard of Crips and Bloods before that. And then all of a sudden, yeah, here they are. They're wearing, you know, they have their colors. Yeah. Because they saw the movie. But uh, they're sure here now. No, yeah. they're they're entrenched. They're, they're all here. over the country. Yep. And the uh, it it was a bloody battle. And a lot of it, and they were throwing all the complaints at the, the narcotics division, but even the open, it was open air market. I mean, a lot of these housing um, uh, complexes uh, was it Fraser Court like Fraser Court were they out there at Southeast uh-huh. during that yeah I'm sure yeah, it was I up. mean it was, they had open air drug marketing and they were wanting the uh, narcotics division to do something about that we even had undercover people you know in surveillance fans watching what was going on then we do a, a street sweep and go in and try and catch who the dealers were and, and round them up but it, it it was really overwhelming the narcotics i'll say section at, at that point and then then they later the problem became so huge it, it became its own division and uh, when i came back as a captain uh my first assignment as a captain because you know the dallas policy is you get promoted you move to a new assignment was over mm-hmm. property crimes and the property crimes uh, was then centralized. So each one of the patrol division station uh, property crime units would report to downtown to the property crimes division. So I had six lieutenants reporting to me, and we had one thing in common. Most of the property crime was being driven by the drug problem. Of course. And, and uh, you know, didn't take a rocket scientist to figure that out. And uh, so I was there for a year while it was centralized, and then uh, – uh, I got sent back over to narcotics, I, I think mostly due to the experience of having been there as a lieutenant. And uh, and, and the problem was still mushrooming. 
and uh, we expanded the division again. I think at one point we had 84 detectives assigned to narcotics. And uh, I know you're probably thinking, wow. But when I first came to Dallas, it was a sergeant and eight. That was that was the whole narcotics deal. And now we're up to a whole division. And uh, They wore suits back then. Yeah, 84. <laughs> de- yeah, they did. The detectives they, and they narcotics only followed up wore on scripts. suits. That was the, that was the drug problem. They followed up on scripts and whatever uh, whatever patrol arrested, but yeah. now we have our own division. We're at eighty four. Uh, I had some really good lieutenants working for me uh, when I got there. Uh, Bob, had another lieutenant named John Young, uh, uh, David Golden, and uh, we were doing what we could. But we uh, putting band aids on a yeah on a gash and. Uh, the street drug problem. I'd gone to a couple of schools, and, and myself and Bob and John Young, and there's this chief of police, Reuben Greenberg, and he says, don't try and drive them out of business with the criminal justice system because all you're going to do is clog the criminal justice system, the courts and the, and the jails. Drive them out of business economically. It's made a whole lot of sense. He yeah. said, you get uniformed officers out there in a Polaroid camera, just take pictures of everybody coming and going at license plates, and, and, and you will drive them out of business and – yeah, some people say you move the problem, but just keep it moving. So uh, I wanted to go in, in that direction, but the chief of police we had at the time, Mac Vines, uh, <clears throat> he was more interested in seizures. Empty and, numbers. I mean, you get a bunch. You yeah. get a bunch of numbers, but it doesn't. Well, he, really wanted, stop he didn't want drug seizures. He was more interested in money seizures oh, and, okay. uh, and uh, car seizures, and uh, he wanted to expand the narcotics division again. And I said. Um, I didn't think we could do it safely. We were already at 84. We had just done an expansion like within the last six months. And uh, we had tapped out everybody that had experience, and we didn't want to put people in and undercover because uh, it, it is really – I mean, we had people in undercover, but I didn't want to take fresh people in and put them undercover because it's really dangerous. And we had pretty much tapped out everybody from the vice division. So uh, myself and, and lieutenants, we didn't want to see that expansion, but uh, – they expanded it again, and uh, we were up over like a hundred and some odd detectives, maybe a hundred and twenty. And I didn't think we could do it safely. And uh, but I was I was a division commander, but I wasn't being listened to. And then uh, uh, suddenly, uh, as if uh, divine providence, a uh, life preserver was thrown to me and said, "Would you like to come over to the SWAT team and be the SWAT captain?" And I think the reason I was asked was, number one, the, the special operations commander at the time was uh, Roger Duncan, great guy. And I had, I had worked for him before in uh, uh, the Internal Affairs Division. He asked me to come over to SWAT, and I said, I, I always wanted to go to SWAT. And he says, well, I need you, and you got a lot of experience running warrants, so come on over here. So I got to go to SWAT, and uh, as time went on, I think uh, my two lieutenants saw that there was uh, – what we had all talked about, that we were expanding the narcotics division too quickly. And uh, I was able to bring them over to SWAT. So Bob came over to SWAT, and John Young came over to SWAT, too. What was the size of SWAT whenever you took it over? I think we had, uh, I want to say. 66. Yeah, that's yeah I remember because it's the same as LAPD yeah. at the time. Wow. We had, uh, we had two units, A and E. Yeah, and there was uh, with with officers and lieutenant and sergeants and lieutenants. There yeah. was sixty six for yeah. a long time. Yeah, each yeah. lieutenant uh, had four sergeants, and each sergeant had, I, I think, uh, eight people assigned to him. Yes. Yeah. Eight. Yeah. What was the training like? 
back then. I know it, I know it grew and grew, but when y'all took it over, what was it like in SWAT? Uh, yeah, SWAT was full time. We were full time SWAT. We were used for when we weren't training or running SWAT operations. We were used to supplement, you know, saturate patrol high crime areas. But the uh, the PT was pretty rigorous uh, to get in. And PT stayed rigorous to stay in twice a year, and uh, there was usually usually training every day in addition to the physical training, which was every day. But uh, guys spent a lot of time out at the range. That's why I almost took the headphones because you know I went through when we fought like we train and train like we fight. So I never put hearing protectors on, and and now I have that continuous ring the ringing, ringing yeah. in my ears, the tinnitus. Yeah, yeah, yeah I've I've heard of that, <laughs> uh, Lieutenant. You're known for your training, and we talked about it when you were on. Um, did y'all get together as far as like forming the SWAT training? Did y'all coordinate pretty closely on what model to go on and, and model adapter? Yeah, we had a, uh, a procedure where they would we would plan out the whole year of training, mm-hmm. and we would look at what we what skill the SWAT officer need to have, and how does that fall in the list of priorities? You know, the number one obviously you know would be drug warrants because that's what you do the most of. At the bottom would be things that you probably, hopefully, will never do, like aircraft assault. We did that once a year because, I mean, there, there's a possibility. We train with DFW Airport, and there's a possibility you do that, but you don't want to. It's very unlikely it's going to happen, emergency aircraft assault. So you had a, anywhere from that to, or repelling, things like that, that's basically never been used or used once or twice in Dallas. And so in between that, you do the things that are, you need the most common shooting, uh, defensive tactics, drug warrants, barricaded person, hostage situations, n- negotiations, those things. Yeah. And crowd control. We always and crowd, crowd control. Yeah, usually, yeah. Usually big crowd control. That was back yeah. when, before mobile field force, yeah. where tactical was the response to crowd control. We did a lot of crowd control training and actual crowd control. <laughs> yeah. Well, Going back to the, you ran a lot of narcotics warrants, right? right? The Jamaican door blocks. Can y'all describe to the listener what that was back then? I mean, I know what it is, and everybody else in this room knows what it is. But a lot of listeners, they we use those these basically locks dope dealers right. puts on their house uh, their house to prevent us from getting in and also protect themselves from other dealers are gonna uh, they're gonna rip them. Well, what what they would generally do, preferably they would find a railroad railroad tie and cut it into pieces and there'd be one that was literally blocked into the floor right behind the door because all doors open in to uh housing and um then they take another section of that railroad tie and put it up against the door itself and then they would get that last section and have it cut at 45 degree angles so it would slip in there. Some of the more ingenious would put hinges on there mm-hmm. so they yep. could flip it back and forth uh, to go in and out. But, uh, yeah, the door was heavily fortified. And that was, that was the simplest Jamaican block. And then they got more and more uh, ingenious with their devices. One of the things that we found, or that I found, it's kind of interesting, um, the strategy as – we had to continually change our strategies because the drug dealers 
caught on to our strategies and tactics, so they do counter-strategies and tactics. Like, at first, it wasn't unusual to hit a drug house, and the drug house was also the stash house and the money house, and, and you got all, everything all at once. But then they started getting a little wiser, and, you know, they had the money house someplace else, the stash house someplace else. They were only supplying the crack house with a little bit at a time. They were making frequent money runs and putting 16-, 17-year-olds in, in the uh, crack house and uh, heavily fortify it and arm those uh, young drug dealers in there. And uh, that's what we were running up against. So it got harder and harder to try and work your way up the up the chain. Uh, that was one of the things I was interested in. I'll, I'll bend back around to that. We, When I was there, we had your street-level squads, your mid-level squads, and then we had what we called our big deal squads. Multi-kilo yeah. yeah, and we had uh, David McCoy was uh, pretty good. We actually formed a task force. It was called the uh, Nighttime Task Force. And um, so uh, there was a grant out there, and uh, we applied for a federal grant to do this multi-jurisdictional, uh, what we call nighttime. It stood for narcotics uh, interdiction. Uh, no, I'm sorry, nar- narcotics intelligence gathering of high-level traffickers. Targets identified for multi-jurisdictional enforcement. That was where nighttime got its name. you got to have an acronym. Yeah, yeah. And, and boy, that won it with wow. the feds. Yeah, that won it <laughs> yeah, with the feds. They gave us some money. Right there, so, uh, uh, but before we applied for it, I'd gone to uh, McVine's and I said, hey, these squads that I got here, the big deal squads, you're interested in money seizures. We can take in more money than, that, uh, than what the feds are going to give us. The feds were going to give us like $250,000. But any seizures had to go back to the feds to replenish other grants. You want to get a percentage of that? When you, uh, well, what we got was the grant money up front. Really? That was it. Yeah, we didn't keep we didn't get to keep anything. No. Okay. no, all the seizures on a grant go back to the uh, feds. So I explained that. He said, no, no, let's, let's go for the grant. So, um, yeah. So what happened next was we made two seizures in the, in the course of a week with the big deal squad, with the nighttime people. And uh, it was over $500,000 in just the first week of operation. And uh, for the listeners that don't remember, Mac Vines was uh, eventually fired for being indicted for perjury. So uh, <clears throat> I got called in uh, in the chief's office, and they wanted to know if I could backdate <laughs> when we made those uh, i had heard this story i didn't know that that's true i don't know and i went wow i i pointed out that i successfully kept myself out of the federal penitentiary up to that point in my life and i had no intentions of going there then and it is what it is and we're not backdating anything and that's when i knew i, I needed to get it was time for me to get out of the narcotics division and uh, that's a true story, yeah. And that's about the time Roger Duncan said, would you like to come over to SWAT? And I said, perfect timing. I need to get out of here. Now, eventually, the things that we were predicting, that it, it, we had rookies training rookies in, in, in the narcotics division, and the guys that were there were doing great work. But to expand it one more time, we were afraid that uh, we, had, we had predicted that there was going to be an officer safety issue. There was going to be uh, integrity issues, and there was going to be uh, just we were depleting patrol, right? Yeah, which is another thing I saw throughout the course of my career. But uh, and sure enough, after we were gone, we were over in in uh, uh, tactical division. There was uh, two friendly fire sh- shooting situations in in uh, 
SWAT and then, uh, excuse me, two friendly fire shooting situations in narcotics. Then, uh, then there was missing drugs. And then, then there was the missing $50,000 out of the drug vault, which was uh, long after Bob and I had left. Mm-hmm. The, Thank uh, God. I've heard about that. And then, and then after that, I was all, all the way up in McKinney when the fake drug scandal hit. And so I, I think that goes all the way back to the commanders that were there who weren't being listened to, myself and the, and the lieutenants, that were expanding this place too fast. There's going to be problems down the road. Right. So when you got, when you got the SWAT and you're, you're running all these narcotics warrants, did y'all do any kind of cross train narcotics and SWAT? Yes. Did, okay. So that that had already started. Yeah, actually, I, when I first got the narcotics, SWAT was the ones that were teaching us how to run the warrants. Good for narcotics, and mm-hmm. then there was a matrix that was filled out that, if, depending on you know how, how bad the bad guy was, if we knew who it was, or if we knew what the uh, what kind of weapons they had inside, or if we knew what kind of fortifications they had inside, they filled out the matrix, and if it was a SWAT. Um, would get the warrant from narcotics. Uh, we, we would run specialized uh, narcotics warrants. How are you guys defeating those Jamaican blocks at this time period? Because that's before explosive breaching. That's before pulls. How are you guys defeating them? Well, the first thing was pretty uh, basic. They started attacking the hinges. Instead of, instead of the, the door and the door lock side, we started attacking the hinges, and a couple of slams on the hinge side would fling the door open. But, of course, they would adapt to our... Changing tactics, so uh, but that was the first thing we did. So manual breaching, yeah, uh, yeah, it was uh, a man, uh, manual breaching with a battering ram, and it was just you brute force, it, brute force, mm-hmm. and then they. Uh, I mean, if you ever want to go back and watch, what was that show, Dallas Blues? Mm-hmm. The the that's how Scott Pelly, you know Scott Pelly on right? uh, CBS. He's on 60 Minutes now. Yeah, he's on 60 Minutes now. But he was a local reporter, <laughs> and he embedded with uh, with Tactical and during the Jamaican drug wars. And it was called Dallas Blues. And you see some instances where uh, I know Rector was uh, – he was one of the featured breachers. And I don't know how many times he hit the store. You know, the, the rule of thumb was usually, you know, you, you try to get it on one hit and then maybe three because you're right in front of the door and they know yeah. where you are. Mm-hmm. And I know on this one, I mean, he hit it 20 times. And it's, I mean, physically, it's extremely hard to do. Then they started making cages mm-hmm. uh, outside, the, some inside the house. Mm-hmm. You yeah. go in the front Like shark door. cages, yeah. 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 Inside, yeah. And when you got in there, first you had to get in there. When you got in there, you couldn't swing. So then they started, uh, I know if, if you look on uh, the news sometime, you'll see SWAT uh, pulling burglar bars or a cage with the apc yeah just ripping them off with the yeah. apc uh because those things are not those are bolted down mm-hmm. into the foundation of the house and up in the to the uh, ceiling and the studs and they would just they would hook a chain to it and this armored car would just jerk the whole structure out but none of it was fast and so and that was the right. point the point wasn't to keep you out the point was to slow you down yeah. and fortunately in most cases they didn't shoot you know, they just, you know, they flush the dope and lay on the ground. When police come, you're under arrest, but you're not if they don't find any drugs. So that was that was what they did. There was no explosive breaching. Uh, no. And, and, you know, I don't know if that'd be a suitable 
something in a in a residential area with the, that kind of fortification suit. But the the pulling the bars was the best solution we we came up with. Uh, but before that, and and still, and still today, a lot of manual breaching. Right. You know. Yeah. The the SWAT guys in the eighties were huge. Yeah. Oh, they're all jacked. Yeah. When I was in narcotics, we did two man breaching, and uh, you know, and I, I even breached doors if you can believe that with another with another uh, detective. Yeah, but you know, the the thing is, then the two of you are in front of a door. Mm-hmm. So SWAT was the one. I think the first one I noticed that we're doing one man breaching, mm-hmm. and they would it would be not always the biggest person. Sometimes some people that you wouldn't think like. Mark was was a great preacher, and he's not that big. But usually they were pretty big people. Yeah. There's a lot of finesse and a lot of – Yeah, there's you know, a lot of yeah, technique right. uh, to it. But it's difficult, the most dangerous job, you know, getting through the door. And that's the most important job is getting the team inside. There was one – Warren, I remember very well. As a matter of fact, I was teaching in the uh, CPI class to lieutenants the other day uh, here in Dallas, and I – I talked to them because they they were talking about community policing. I said, it's amazing what people remember. I was in uh, my sector as a sergeant was now all of South Central Division. Mm-hmm. But that was my sector as a uh, sergeant over on Southeast. And uh, I worked days. So I was out there with some troops, had some really good troops uh, out there with me. And uh, we... Uh, we really were community policing. I mean, you know, back in the days when there was beat integrity and sector integrity and you got to stay on your beat and get to know the people. And I got to know a lot of the people there. Well, then you fast forward to, you know, I left there in probably 1984, 85, and fast forward to the mid-90s, 10 years later, we're running drug warrants in about the same neighborhood. And Narcotics, uh, former SWAT commander, uh, Dwight, the stumpy. Yeah. And uh, Dwight came to me. He was over in narcotics. At, uh, yeah, Dwight Walker. Yes, I'm sorry. I didn't say his last name. Dwight Walker came over to me, and he said, um, hey, uh, we got this particular drug house over uh, off Overton Road, just east of uh, Lancaster Road. And he said, um, we've hit it three times, and every time we hit it, they refortify it with new fortifications. And the... Uh, it's, it's become a, a game with the drug dealers, and uh, we keep finding, you know, young guys in there and they're heavily armed. We finally get in, we're arresting them, but before we even get these people booked in, the drug dealers come back, fixed whatever we broke, and they're, they're up in operation again. And he goes, a couple of my people got hurt, so i like for your, your folks to handle it. So SWAT looked at it, and we made the decision that uh, we're going to hit it in the daylight. And, uh, you know, most of the stuff we ran covered darkness, but we said, we're going to hit this place in the daylight. And uh, because some of his detectives had gotten hurt because of the fortifications and they really couldn't see what they were up against. One of the scariest things you can do is slam a door, as you all know, and rush in. And next thing you know, you're in a cage. So uh, uh, we briefed. And these drug dealers, they had a. put a cage on the outside of the door, a cage on the inside of the door, had a steel door, had cages on the inside and the outside of the windows, because every time narcotics would hit it, they'd do something additional, and plexiglass on the on the windows so you couldn't get in in the steel garage door. And then we didn't know what was on the other side of that. So we looked at it and looked at it, and um, we uh, 
we decided the best way to do that was to fly in the helicopter because when I was the SWAT commander, I, I had all the all the tactical sections toys, including the helicopters, <laughs> the K-9, the explosives, and the, the mounted, and all those at our disposal. So we flew in the helicopter. We had our gas man up in the helicopter with barricade-penetrating rounds. We were firing through the roof because wow. we, we didn't think it would go through the, uh, the plexiglass windows, plus it might hit the cage. And so he's up there distracting them. In the helicopter, fly, firing the barricade penetrating gas rounds through the roof of this house, uh, we had gotten two backhoes from the city of Dallas, and uh, we backhoed where the windows were and just tore huge gaping holes into the side of this structure. And uh, uh, it was kind of a race who would get in there first, so we we attacked it from all four sides, A, B, C, and D, with backhoes. And we tore a hole in there, and uh, once we did that, uh, we got we got in, got the bad guys. They were trying to put on gas masks, but, you know, if you're already gassed, it's too late to put that mask right. on. So uh, got them out and got the drugs, and, and the place was pretty much uninhabitable from that point forward. And we knew what was going to happen next. We were going to notify the city, and the city was going to, you know, say it's unfit, and they were going to demolish it. But while I was standing back in all my SWAT gear surveying this scene, and I was like, yeah, today's a good day. You know, we took a drug house out of business. This uh, bent-over, frail, little old African-American lady came walking up to us. It was a hot summer day. She came walking up to us. She had a big tray filled with ice water, glasses. And uh, she said, Sergeant Kowalski. And I turned and looked at her. And I said, yes, ma'am. And she goes, we wondered where you went. We missed you out here. And I said, and I knew her name, and I said, oh, I missed you too. She goes, thank you for coming out here because that house was ruining the neighborhood. Would you and your men like some water? And because, you know, officers are kind of a little leery about people that bring them stuff out yeah. there in the street. But I knew who she was. And I, and I said, yes, thank you, Miss So-and-so. And I grabbed the water and started chugging it down, and all my guys grabbed, grabbed the water. And we were slugging down ice water, and she was visiting with us. She said, I'll go get you boys some more water. And I said, I'll tell you what, I'll send a couple of my boys with you, and they can bring the water back so you don't have to make the trip. She said, thank you, thank you. And all the people from the neighborhood came out. It was a daylight raid, and they were applauding us. So there are really good people in those neighborhoods that are really depend upon police and police officers and police department. That's why we exist. And somehow or another, they all get forgotten about, especially in this current uh, atmosphere of criticizing and defunding police. Yeah. That, that there's good people out there that we're protecting, and they appreciate us, and there's a lot of good officers out there doing the Lord's work. Which well, rewarding because people like that are living amongst that trash, yes. and, they, and they're getting terrorized daily. Mm -hmm. The people that are sitting there uh, with a megaphone don't live in the neighborhood. Right. And they don't need police as badly as, as those you're, people and the old lady with, with coming out with the water. You're exactly right. Um, you talked about beat responsibility. In in your opinion, what changed that over the years? What Taking away the beat cop and, and, and understanding the uh, community and forming relationships like you did. So when I uh, – when Ben Clake, who – I thought he was a great chief of police when he promoted me to uh, uh, deputy chief. He signed me to the communications division. And I said, well, uh, he said, I'm going to make you deputy chief. And I said, uh, I was happy being the SWAT captain. I didn't want to go anywhere. I said, uh, do I have to go? He said, yeah. I said, where am I going? And he said, you're going to communications. And I said, 
Am I being punished? <laughs> if I turn it down, what's going to happen? And he goes, well, I'll make a deal. If you go there and don't and do a good job, I'll, uh, I'll send you back over special operations after you fix some things down there. I said, but what if I don't go? And he said, well, you're going anyway, but I don't owe you anything. And I said, you, you drive a heck of a bargain. I'll take so. the star. Yeah. <laughs> and um, I went down there, and uh, what had happened was a couple of things. One uh, was a good thing. 911, the advent of 911. Yes. But that turned into a bad thing after a while. We got the tyranny of 911. It's like people found it real easy to call the police, just punch three numbers, and they'll call for everything. And the police department initially sold to everybody, if you call 911, we'll come. And so we were responding to all kinds of calls. And then they decided, well, we will prioritize the calls so we get the other ones quicker. So I think. I got down there. We had uh, five priorities. I think five different priorities. The ones and the twos and the threes were the ones that we were most interested in. But we were close to making the goal on priority one, close to making the goal on priority two, nowhere near it on priority three because the burglar alarms were in that group. So uh, emergency calls, we were still pretty good. But when I started looking at it and analyzing, and I had a couple of Really good people down there helped me out. Randy Rowland, uh, uh, Jake Moore was down there, uh, Lieutenant Jake Moore, Sergeant Randy Rowland. And we started analyzing and scratching our head trying to figure out why why do officers start out at North Central Division and end up at the end of their shift in southeast or southwest? Well, what's going on out here? And why are the hold times for officers in the jails on Friday and Saturday night? Because we were calling in all the offenses then offenses and arrest reports why are they in the jail four or five hours and, and now everybody's all over the place well when we started analyzing it we had discovered something amazing and it was like it was so simple it was so it was so simple it was like almost too simple but when we graphed it out we showed how the uh graphed how the call load call times response times were increasing over the course of 10 years and then we showed the number of officers that were actually assigned to patrol to answer calls were decreasing over the, number, over the same number of years. And when you overlap both graphs, it, you had a big X. And so uh, what had happened was, and I'm not saying any of these units weren't important, but um, you had like 40 officers taken from patrol to do the expansion of narcotics, and they were supposed to do the, um, the street squad stuff. Then. uh but I thought, you know, like I said, going back to that story, our recommendation from narcotics was let us get them in here, train how to economically drive them out of business. They stay assigned to patrol. They get the crack house complaints, and they stay uniform patrol, and these are special assignments they get. We can train them to do that. But um, chief's office didn't want to do that then, but there was 40 of them that came out of patrol for that. There was 40 of them or more that came out of them for the gang unit when the gang unit was formed. Um, additionally, there was a, a, a – it started out as a good idea, but the Interactive Community Policing Unit, the ICP unit, or as patrol like to call them, I Can't Police mm -hmm. or the Ice Cream Police. Cream. Bill Rathburn formed that group to kickstart community policing. And then it was supposed to be absorbed by the rest of patrol. Rathburn stayed two years. When he went away, it stayed as its own unit. 
And although the people looked like they were assigned to patrol, they were not call answers. And so you had probably a, a large amount of personnel assigned to these community policing units. But they, they were doing things that were not really – you know, midnight basketball leagues. City, uh, you know, like council meetings and yeah. like town hall meetings. But, right. Know. And so when we pointed that out, um, I said, what we need to do is go back to beat integrity, sector integrity. When officers, it should be more than just a call number. When you get out, when you clear, that's your beat. You get to know the people in your area. Uh, you get to know your good guys, bad guys, uh, residents, business people. And that's real community-oriented policing where every officer has an investment in that piece of turf. And that's that's how I cut my teeth in Dallas. I, I was amazed, you know, it was 20-some-odd years later when I go back and look at it, that was all gone. And it was, we had officers running all over the city. And I brought that back to um, uh, Chief Click. And he said, this is amazing. We're going to have to make some changes here. And uh, we went to a big meeting and... Uh, he had me present it to all the patrol commanders, and uh, Marvin Bullard was there, and he said, "Yeah, this is this is good stuff." And and uh, all, all the other chiefs looked at it and said, "And uh, Robert Jackson, who was overfield operations, was a three story, said this is really good stuff." But there was one chief in there that felt personally offended by what I m- had recommended, and that was a two star chief named Terrell Bolton. And I, I've, uh, I've heard of him. Yeah, so did I, unfortunately. <laughs> and uh, anyway, he. Um, it makes sense. Now. Yeah. It he, all uh, makes sense. Yeah. He, um, that was his kind of little privatized police department that he sent around to certain businesses and, and council people. And, and they, they were, they were kind of his private police force. I don't know how else to put it, but that's, that's what it looked like. Well, for, the the bid had had not started before you left EPD, right? Oh no. Okay. The, no. From what I've seen, that we have a bid process now, and it's, I, in in my opinion, I think that's kind of hurt the the uh, beat responsibility neighborhood policing because you have and I don't blame I don't blame the officer. I did the same. You chase days off basically mm-hmm. based on your seniority. So you have an officer that's worked his first eight years at Northeast, he actually knows the area, knows the geography, knows the people living there. He knows the businesses. And then he finds out he can get better days off on evenings at Southeast. He goes to Southeast. He doesn't know anybody there. He doesn't know the community. He doesn't, um, you know, even know, even know the geography. And then the next year he finds out he can get days of weekends at South central. Then he All jumps right. over there. We've seen that that is really difficult to maintain any and form any kind of relationships as an officer from officer to community. But, that's it's 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 helped a lot of officers uh right. with, with getting a schedule they, that's best for them and their family but as far as beat responsibility i think that is actually uh hurting a lot of ways yeah it sounds like it destroyed it we we had bidding but the bidding went for the shift you were on oh. and uh as you got more seniority you could go to a better shift and on that shift as you got more seniority you can get better days off um uh, but that was about as far as it went. You you could you could shift around to a different sector if, if right. you had the seniority, but you not, it didn't go spread outside of your division. No, but, I, what I found with it that I didn't like about it, and I, the officers loved it. Mm-hmm. I remember when I, I was coming out of headquarters, I was over the academy, and uh, there was a, a group of uh, uh, officers who just graduated. There were. I, 
I don't. I think they might have got off probation, but just barely. And they they were the last group to bid, and they're just happy as clams. You know, hey, we got we got to choose where we got to go. I said, well, where'd you get to go? Well, we got uh, southeast on Tuesday and Wednesday off. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But I got to choose, so I, I see that thing. But what I didn't like about it as a watch commander was when when. Right, who's going to leave mostly? Who's who's going to leave the department in a, in a patrol division? Days, evenings, or, or first watch, or deep nights? It's going to be days generally. They retire. They not always, but they retire. They they get a bureau. They go something. to a bureau or yeah. something like that. And uh, so they're always short. And then the the younger the younger officers that are ambitious, you know, they they go to narcotics. They go to SWAT and all this. But you can't backfill those positions until the next bid. So if you're on first watch or third watch, you know that you can't get a replacement until academy graduates. And of course, that's only several months. So, well, yeah. and that's after they get off probation yeah. when they when they do their training or the next bid. So I I didn't like it for that for for the most critical watches, evenings and, and late nights. If you lost somebody. You, they were gone. Right. You couldn't fill that. But but before you could move the division commander, the patrol station could move people around. Now morale wise, it was not a great thing. Right. But we actually had to go ask them. You know, hey, I got an opening on on uh, third watch. Would you like to come to third? And and a lot of times they would. You know, yeah, because family things. But if if you didn't get a volunteer, you were just stuck. And that's not we're not talking about one person over mm-hmm. a year. You're talking about you know, 10 people over a year. And that's a lot of people yeah. in a patrol shift. When me and Misty and uh, Randy hired on in 97 or in, in 98, we, you're, you're at your station. You, you got on a list. If yep. you want to go work in another right. place and who knows when you were going to get to, mm-hmm. you know, on that list. Cause there were several people that had been there years on that list and never moved, but that's just the way it was. We didn't know any better. Well, I think it goes all back to how many officers are there on now in Dallas police department? 3,100. 3, okay. Actual strength or. Yes, approved. Well, there's some still in the academy. Counts the rookies for sure in the academy, which Mm -hmm. may be that was always funny to me when oh we're going to hire, you know, right 500 people next year. Oh great, okay. You know, first of all, you're not. But if you did, they're still you hire them today. They're they're 18 months away from hitting the street with the academy and then uh, training. So you're they're at least nine years or nine months from even getting on the street. Yeah, so, per open records, the the it's thirty one hundred ish right now. Yeah, that's where. Okay, so I don't know what the population was back when Doug came on, but you said there was two thousand. Yeah, it's two thousand. I think I think we were under seven hundred fifty thousand population when I first got here. And what's the population now? <laughs> One point five. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. So yeah. theoretically, so you should have four thousand officers. Plus the the positions yep. that you're, you know, all these, you know, it's all. It was always funny to me that, uh, gosh, we're shorthanded here at Third Watch at Southeast, right? But guess what? You know, IED's full, Chief's office is right. full, you know, the bureaus are full. Sound like narcotics was packed. Narcotics <laughs> is full, <laughs> and well, some places yeah. I, I feel like to me, gang unit narcotics. I mean, right. they're no brainer. You got to keep those right. people working. But they're too act. They're too. They're too active. Not we, the, right. yeah. Can we maybe spread the wealth of the, the, the openings? Well, one thing we have also is like a lot of people go to other places on quote-unquote special assignments, and they still count against patrol, but they're not there physically to do patrol work. Right. 
So that's another that's another that's little what I'm saying. They twist should, in it. They should all be the majority should be call answers. No. When, when we did the study, less than this was kind of unusual to me. Less than one third of the department was actually assigned to answering calls. Two thirds of the department was in some sort of specialized assignment. The other little part of that study that we pointed out, and uh, I don't think they they didn't implement it while I was here, but uh, I've implemented it in McKinney and. Uh, and, and also we're about to in Prosper, and that was that uh, the communications division should not be in support services. It should be assigned to the uh, patrol and op- operations because one of the things we discovered in that completely different bureau under that three-star chief, their goals that they were being measured by, that they had control over, was not response time. It was queue time. So the queue time that that call sat in the computer before someone dispatched it was how their goals were being set. So the dispatcher's goals being driven down through that chain of command is uh, when you when it starts flashing critical, you need to dispatch this. It didn't matter who it got dispatched to. It could have been an officer across the division. Across yeah. the town, yeah. Right. And so wow. we, yeah, we pointed that out and said, hey, and, and we made corrections while I was down there to try and fix that. But I was down there 14 months. Uh, uh, true to his word, they had a uh, Stanley Cup uh, Stanley Cup parade for the Dallas Stars. Yep. And uh, Chief Click transferred me out of communications back over special operations so I could be in charge of the victory parade and then the upcoming uh, State Fair of Texas, which I, I, I had a lot of experience at. I have a question for you about parades. I want to get into a little story of Dallas when the back when the Cowboys were we were winning Super Bowls. We had the uh the first Cowboy parade after the first Super Bowl right. with Aikman and Emmett and uh in ninety three and yes. that turned into a, a disaster downtown. Where were you at over when what were you over? I was a uh, captain in charge of the SWAT team. And was SWAT over that protection in in, in detail? Uh, yes. The okay. short answer is yes. Okay. It's a very long answer, though. Yes. Okay. It, it fell to all 66 of us to try and make 400,000 people happy. So. What, <laughs> looking back on it now, what, what happened on that? Because, I mean, it was, I know there was, yeah. there was probably triple the amount of people they expected, and then yeah. it just turned into a Well, a well se- several things happened. So, uh, it was the, uh. What's the name of that George Clooney movie? The Perfect Storm. Perfect Storm. It was yep. the Perfect Storm. So the Cowboys hadn't gone to the Super Bowl, let alone win one, in over ten years. So there was all that anticipation and excitement. There Hell, was, they'll burn the city down now if we if we win it. Yeah, it's been twenty six yeah, years what, since we've been. I, I keep thinking about what they can <laughs> yeah. do now. It's been yeah. thirty years. Oh, I think so, we're good. I don't yeah, think we have to worry no. about that. So, uh, but we had that. They hadn't won in a while. So all that anticipation was was building and excitement. Uh, these guys were the equivalent, especially the main players. They were the equivalent of rock stars at this point. I mean, you got Troy Aikman, uh, Emma Smith, uh, Michael Irvin, and, and uh, Haley. Either. You had the best people right. at their positions in the entire league, right? Yeah, and so they they were. I mean, they were the focus of a lot of attention, and in everybody's euphoria of the moment, everybody wanted to do something great for the Cowboys. So, in the last minute. They said, let's throw them a parade in downtown Dallas. And uh, initially, when we heard about that in the SWAT team, we assumed it was going to be like uh, Texas OU night. We're going to bring down Third Watch from all across the city. 
They're going to pay some overtime to first and second watches to cover the cover the beats, and SWAT will be the get the specialized crowd control problems if any should arise. You know, the get in, get out guys. You know, we needed to get inserted into a crowd and grab some troublemakers up and get them out. So that's what we thought. There wasn't a whole lot of time that went into the planning, um, but town the city announced they were going to do this uh, parade, and uh, at that time. Uh, there was myself, I was the SWAT captain, uh, another great lieutenant I had. He was over Mountain Union at the time, but he had experience in SWAT. He had experience in uh, traffic, uh, Willie Craven. So and uh, he had a lot of experience with special events. And I think my two SWAT lieutenants were John Hancock and Patricia Paul Hill at that point. And our deputy chief of special operations was Granver Tolliver. And... Uh, we didn't know what was going on, and we're trying to find out. Uh, then finally, uh, they start sending our chief to a couple of meetings, but the rest of us haven't been sent to the meetings. We said, well, we need to make sure they do it like Texas OU. And he came back from one of those meetings and said, no, they're not going to spend any money on overtime for this parade. So we kind of blinked and said, uh, that's a terrible idea. So who's, who's going to be running the parade? They said, we are us in traffic and i went that's a terrible idea so uh we need to be able to call in the uh, uh emergency response teams get them downtown from every station we we got to get the emergency response teams both of them from each station we got to supplement our folks he went off to another meeting came back said no we're not going to get those and i went huh so we busily made plans to Canceled days off. Every SWAT guy that didn't already have vacation paid for was there. All of our mounting unit officers were there, which they weren't even talking about, but we had to have them there. Uh, all of our traffic unit came in, the motorcycle guys. Uh, then we said, can we at least get the bicycle officers from the central business district, which we did get. And uh, but that was about 20 of them. I think all told we ended up with about 120 officers to try and go with go at this event but then other things started happening while we were trying to decide what the police department's response was going to be and all these things were being negated then um in the moment of euphoria uh the dallas independent school district decided that they give every kid an unexcused absence that day and, wow. and it was like uh i mean excused absence excused absence they didn't you know you took off I think they bust them down there, too. Well, that was the next thing. Then Dart, yeah. Dart, in their euphoria, heard that and said, we will bus all the children down there for free. Children. Yeah, children, yeah. And uh, and I went, oh, this couldn't possibly get worse. We were busy trying to get trucks to put the uh, the players up on, at least up above the crowd, and barricades for the streets. And... Uh, uh, my boss came back from one of the meetings and said, uh, the mayor has friends, and <laughs> Mayor Steve Bartlett, has friends in the Dallas Corvette Club. And if anybody asks why I don't like Corvettes to this day, so the mayor had cor uh, friends in the Corvette Club, and they wanted to donate their cars, and they would bring about 50 of them down, and the players would ride in the back of Corvettes, which, as we all know, is a very low-profile vehicle. Yep. And if you sit down in a Corvette, you can't really be seen. And we went, wow. 
Uh, we need, uh, that's a bad idea. We thought it had been next and we ordered trucks. And we said, you know, somebody explained to the mayor. And um, then last but certainly not least was they wanted to run it down the Canyon Street, which was Commerce. And we said, no, we don't want to go down Commerce. We want to go up Young, up and down Young. And then the city uh, decided that the, over at City Hall that there would be a static event at the end of it in Town Hall Square. And uh, we were like, we don't have anybody to police that. And they put chairs and everything out there in a stage. And we said, this is a bad idea. This needs to be nixed. And the parade route is terrible because it goes up Commerce over Harwood. And it comes back down on itself on uh, uh, Griffin Street. And we went, it's, uh, the crowd only has to move two blocks and they're back on us again. So, but uh, <clears throat> despite all of our protestations, uh, and when we were finally told we were, it was the Saturday before the parade. And that's when we said we needed the emergency response teams. And, and they got nixed on the, on the uh, Tuesday, on the Monday be night before the parade. So that's what we went down there with. We, we went at it with what we had. And when we showed up that morning expecting to, well, one of the other plans we had to nix, because we couldn't get the barricades, then somebody thought it was a grand idea that we'll just have the motorcycle officers ride up and down the curb fast to keep the people up on the curb. That'll do it. Yeah. So uh, obviously uh, cooler heads prevailed on that, that that wasn't going to happen. And, uh, and one plan that we saw had the motorcycle officers in charge of crowd control riding their motorcycles, and all the SWAT officers would be a block north and a block south of the parade, each block, one officer on each intersection doing traffic control. So we said, so the plan is right now, crowd control officers are going to do traffic, and the traffic officers are going to do crowd control. Does anybody see a problem with this picture? This is on the Monday before the parade. And so uh, we threw together what we had, and we uh, showed up that morning, and we decided to split the parade into, into uh, really – really thirds. So the first third of the parade uh, would be the troops that we had, and they'd be commanded by Lieutenant Hancock. And uh, the middle of the parade would be uh, me with the troops that I had. And uh, that way, if something happened up front, I could move up front. If something happened behind me, I could move to the back. And the, the le rear end of the parade, the third, last third, was uh, Lieutenant Paul Hill. And uh, then we put the mounted unit officers in the parade, too, to try and keep people back and off the floats. So, uh, so Lieutenant uh, Craven was there and uh, mounted, and I said, we need to have a command post, and we need to have a command post in City Hall because I don't think this is going to go the way people want it to go. And that got nixed. So all your commanders were out in the field. And uh, we had Sergeant, uh, another great guy, uh, Andy Paris, uh, I took him out of the admin and said, go give us a phone number, find a phone and sit there because I know I'll be calling you. And we showed up that morning at, at the parade staging area, which was Reunion Arena, and I see 50 Corvette convertibles. And I look around and I find the person that's in charge of that, who wasn't us, it was somebody from City Hall, and I said, where's, where's my trucks? And they said, oh, the mayor nixed that idea. We're getting... They're going to ride yeah. in that. So we had one player, because some of those linemen, you can only put one player on, yeah. on, on in that Corvette. And uh, a couple of them, smaller guys, lesser guys, we could put two, but they were on the back of a Corvette. And then that stretched what troops we had out over 50 vehicles when we thought we were only going to be over maybe six. And then when we turned that corner from Houston Street onto Commerce, 
and I looked up the street. I looked up, and Lieutenant Craven came riding up to me on the horse, and I looked up to him. He was on the horse, and I was on the on the ground. I said, I think I know how General Custer felt at the Little Bighorn. Yeah. <laughs> and I said, this isn't going to be pretty. He said, no, it's not. And um, the first third of the parade, Lieutenant Hancock and them got through because it was, you know, the Lombardi Trophy. It was uh, Jerry Jones. And uh, Jerry Jones and uh, his family that we knew about on the uh, right. on the truck at the time, and uh, 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 on a truck, and we even tried to get fire trucks, and that got next. The fire department knew better. Well, the fire department said we don't want to yeah, put our equipment down I don't blame there. Them. So uh, that was that was the last minute we tried to call an audible from the line. Can we get some fire trucks down here and put put the players on that? But they said no. Nah, we've seen the crowd. So anyway, we. Uh, no barricades. And then as the uh, first third gets through, an uh, interesting thing happens. Uh, the euphoria, like I said, people just kept adding things to this. The four ton, four and a half tons, I think it was, of ticker tape fell from the rooftops on Commerce Street, which looked real nice, made a nice visual effect, but got sucked up into the manifolds of all the motorcycles. And the motorcycle officers ended up, most of them had to push their motors out of there. So they were... They were uh, negated almost uh, as soon as that ticker tape started falling. First third gets through. The second third, I'm in. Uh, we get bogged down because uh, Je- um, Troy Aikman is in the convertible. He's one of the first ones. I think uh, I think Emmett Smith and uh, Michael Irvin are behind him. And they just the crowd just comes off the sidewalks and crushes. Emmett had a necklace ripped off his neck, I believe. Uh, I think he- yeah, I mean, and, and Troy was Troy was. I happened to be up near his vehicle, and he said, are we going to be okay? And I said, uh, yeah. We'll I'll make get sure, back to you on that. You want to make sure you are. And we started throwing people around his vehicle to keep him from getting hurt because that was really going to be a disaster. And uh, the, the car couldn't move anymore because the drivers weren't used to the fact that you had to be really close to the other people's bumper. News media people were stepping out in the street with their cameras in front of cars. <clears throat> just bogged down everything. The crowd, uh, the crowd pushed in, and uh, it was, man, it was just a big mess. If it wasn't for the mounted unit, I think I'd still be standing on Commerce Street right yeah, now because right. <laughs> they came down and extracted each car, one car at a time, put a whole diamond pattern of of horses around each car, and got us all the way up to Harwood where we can make make the turn. Was that like an impromptu? Did just they just decided to do that to get oh, to no, we, extract them out there to plan that. We knew we we talked about it in advance. Okay. It's something that they have worked out, worked on in the past, but uh, it was we had no radio communications only because we couldn't hear each other. The crowd was so loud. And, and those Corvette engines are pretty. Yeah, pretty loud. I mean, and and then one of the Corvettes because of the ticker tape that got up underneath their catalytic converter, it caught on fire. <laughs> I mean, you know, it's like when you don't have the big things right, the little things are going to kill you. So. Um, yeah, and then we got over to the city hall. Finally, uh, we got there behind schedule. They were going to do a presentation on the on the stage they had erected at city hall. The crowd had taken over all the seating yeah. area. They were rocking the stage. We had to get everybody off of that back on the team buses and the heck out of there. We escorted them to the freeway and they got out. There was a blue ribbon commission that was formed later on by the. Um, uh, council, because they were pretty upset that their assigned seating had been take, taken over by the mob. 
But, um, yeah, it was a Blue Ribbon Commission. Charles Terrell headed it up, and uh, they looked at it. There was individuals on there like uh, Adeline Harrison, former former council person or mayor, and uh, uh, Drew Pearson was on there, and uh, they were calling people down to testify, and they, they did a, flew a, a full Blue Ribbon Commission report. As they should have. I mean, yeah. this this city and uh, – and parades and convertibles just it just has never worked out well well what we kept what we kept hearing was it's just a parade you know why do you crazy guys in SWAT want all this stuff you know that's ba- that's basically the word we were getting back it was like it's just a parade what are you all concerned about yeah, everybody's happy at parades what, yeah it's a, it's still, you know. everybody's feel good having worked the state fair for about 10 years i see, i've seen what a happy crowd can do when you get that <laughs> that Mass of humanity in yes. one place. There's always potential disaster, and that anonymity in the crowd. Look, yeah. Some of the things that were happening to us, I remember. And drinking, and you know, oh yeah, that. they uh, they did loot one store. You know, they say there's seven stages to a full full fledged riot. We were at about stage five. They had uh, they had looted a, a liquor store that was up the street on uh, uh, field. I think it was field. But anyway, uh, they got in there, and now we had liquor in the crowd. Most of them were teenage kids. They didn't want to listen. It had the anonymity of a crowd. And, uh, I mean, it got to the point when, I still remember this, Aikman's, <laughs> Aikman's car was so bogged down, so were the cars behind us. The crowd started pushing us. Now, this guy was trying to roll. I literally got pushed up against that car, my back, and the car's rolling. I feel I'm twisted. I can't move because the mm-hmm. crowd is all on me. So I tell the other guys, jump up on the car. The guy that owns that Corvette is very upset now. Tell them to get off my car. And I'm like, uh, no, we're going to get hurt. We're going to get crushed. So we're sitting on top of the car. Uh, several officers, I won't mention their names. They weren't tech guys. But they lost equipment in the crowd. The crowd yeah. was grab, grabbing equipment off of them. Uh, Souvenir. Batons. Uh, fortunately, they didn't lose, to my knowledge, we didn't lose any pistols. But batons, pepper spray, hats. Um but I got up on the back of that Corvette. I got my butt up on there. And as soon as I did that, one of these kids from a crowd, it was a surrealistic moment, looked at me and laughed and grabbed my shoe and tried to pull my shoe off my foot. And I'm thinking, wow, for the for the want of a shoe, the rider has lost that old Ben, ben Franklin uh, <laughs> saying. And I went, uh, I wasn't going to have any of that. So I took my free foot and planted it firmly uh, in his chest and shoved him back into the crowd. But later on, we got reports of um, all all that. So when we get extracted, so we stay because the horses are right there. We stay on on our butts on the back of the car. The car makes a turn onto Harwood. There's a elevated uh, at Harwood and uh, Commerce. There's an elevated platform of a of a news media there. And we finally got a little bit free, and they come and they make this turn. I remember some of the people on the Blue Ribbon Commission wanted to know, why were the SWAT guys riding in the parade? And it was like, we weren't riding. We were trying to get out of that mass of humanity. And uh, we got uh, got there. We canceled the static event, but the crowd didn't go anywhere. They were were going riding, really. So uh, we moved. Everybody we had, horses went first. Uh, we went to Commerce and Griffin. And uh, 
we set up our command. It was kind of like later, like uh, almost like Florence and Normandy in uh, Los Angeles, only we weren't going to turn and run. So all the SWAT guys got there. We set up the command post right there on that manhole cover at Cummins and Griffin. We split the crowd with the horses into into halves, and we started splitting it into quarters, and then we started dividing it up from there. We ordered small up, bites. Yeah, we start, ordered up city buses. Buses. We thank God Andy Paris was in City Hall because I called him, and they had that. I presume they still have it. It's called the Daisy System, where they can notify all the downtown business offices, security desks, to do something. I said, tell them to activate the Daisy System. And tell them to lock down their buildings because this crowd is liable to start running into office buildings. And we don't want office people to come out into this crowd because it was at that point it was getting near the end of the day, workday. We don't want office people coming in here and becoming uh, victims of the crowd. And we don't want the crowd running into your office buildings. So, so they locked down the office buildings. And uh, we commenced to, uh, oh, let's just say the we uh, suspended the writ of habeas corpus and started uh, putting people on buses, whether they wanted to go or not. So, and we just started putting people in the buses and ordering the buses to go to different locations and disperse the crowd uh, to different areas all over town. Well, you have to do that for the betterment of the city. Yeah. And, yeah. The, and the citizens, you just got to, yeah. you got to do it. And it was really interesting when the, when the, <laughs> there was a lot of criticism that came out of that blue ribbon committee for a lot of the, a lot of the city planners or lack of planning and a lot of the political officials and the school districts and the dark people and uh, even to the police uh, upper administration. But but they made it a point to praise the SWAT team and the downtown central business district officers and the mountain union officers and uh, uh, for saving downtown that day because we were, we were that close to having that, you know, columns of smoke rising from downtown. Wow. You, your career, you have seen so much growth in the city of Dallas. You've seen so much crime. You've seen so many wars at different levels within the city, uh, from politicians to command staff to uh, drug wars uh, to cowboy parades gone awry. And the, the next follow-up year, it went, it went relatively smooth from compared yeah. to the year. Yeah, before. in 94, it was very smooth. Yep. And then again in 96. 96 was a real... I call it the Goldilocks or the Baby Bear Parade. Everything went just right. Right. <laughs> so I'm going to fast forward to 2000. Yeah. You, you left DPD. Yes, sir. How hard was that to, to walk away from a city that you've... I, I got to tell you, it still hurts me to talk about it. Because okay. it, it wasn't just the city I worked for for 23 years. It, it, I left everything I knew, all my family and friends. And I said, Dallas is the place I want to be. And I left everything I knew, and like I said, loaded up in the 1972 Pontiac Le Mans and came down here, and uh, I poured, poured my heart and soul into it. And I I still love the city of Dallas, and I love the Dallas Police Department. That'll never change, but uh, it was hard. I, I I knew it was time for me to go when well when the new chief Terrell Bolton took over, and it was a hostile takeover. Of the, Dallas Police Department and the uh, old command staff was pretty much wiped out for no particular reason other than he didn't like them and he was trying to in my opinion very Machiavellian move was uh, replace all of the older seasoned leaders with uh, younger unseasoned folks giving them double triple promotions and then they were economically beholding to him to uh, do exactly what he wanted 
Uh, I was still a member of the command staff uh, for when he took over October the 1st. He never met with us. He never met with any of the command staff. I was the commander of the state fair. I'm supposed to make a week, weekly report to the uh, chief of police about what's going on at the fair, how things are going. And uh, he refused to meet with me for the next four weeks. Uh, so I ended up writing up a report, go there. They said, nope, he's not meeting with you, and I leave a piece of paper. And uh, when he got sworn in as chief October, well, I'm trying to remember exactly when they swore him in as the chief. It may have been, I know there was a transition from during September when Click was still here and Terrell was still here. But uh, I think October 1st was the official day, and they had a swearing-in ceremony, and they, they told all the command staff to be there. So I left the state fair. I leave my command. I leave my captain in charge and say, yeah, i got to go over there. And uh, we're sitting in the, uh, no, in the arts district, I, 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 auditorium in, in the uh, arts museum, I believe it was. And we're all sitting there. And then we're waiting, we're waiting, and uh, we're told to leave. I found that rather shocking. <laughs> and I said, excuse me? And uh, they said, yeah, the uh, chief wants uh, everybody to leave so we make room for people of the community. So the entire current command staff who was told to be there had to up and leave, and we left. I went back to the fair. Uh, Glenn White was the president of the uh, DPA at that time. And Glenn White and I went through the academy together, uh, and uh, he was he was kind of fit to be tied about how everybody was being treated. But anyway, I went back, and then, uh, you know, October the 30th, he, the first meeting he's going to have with the command staff is on a Saturday morning. We're told to come to a command staff meeting. And we go there. We're all sitting there. So first command staff meeting with the new chief. He walks in, says, my secretary has envelopes for you all and has everybody's name on it. And we're sitting in this room going, well, what's going on? And she's passing out the envelopes, and people start opening them. And he says, nope, 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 nope. Nobody opens the envelopes until everybody has their envelope. And then he disappeared through another door and got the, you may open your envelope now, and kind of like taking an SAT. I was like, what, what, what is this all about? And he wasn't in the room? No. But he, he was there initially. He said, yeah, yeah, he, yeah, he, he, said, okay, he walked in initially. He and said, then, yeah. then he left. Okay. But uh, we all were suspecting something bad was going to happen because that morning in the newspaper, it said uh, there was a story. It said uh, Chief Bolton is going to announce new promotions in the police department and transfers of several people out of the command staff. Well, you don't transfer out of the command staff. You know, that's what we were kind of scratching our head about. But... Because up to that point in time, nobody, had, even in the command staff level, had been demoted except for cause. And uh, I guess the cause was he didn't like us. So, uh, But he brought in a, a whole fresh group of folks, double, triple promoted them. And uh, I, got, uh, I got told that I was going to Southeast Division as captain. And I said, well... I, and not that I have a problem with patrol. I'm fine with patrol. I said, my question is, the city spent tens of thousands of dollars training me on to be the special operations commander. I said, I could, if everybody just put me there and forgot about me, I could die and go to heaven, you know, eventually, and, and, and I'd be happy. And I said, why, why are they doing that? 
and uh, I mentioned that person's said, name and said, the, the chief wants you removed from your power base. And I went, wow. Let me write that yeah. down. Yeah, <laughs> and so uh, I went off to Southeast, and I, I enjoyed it. You know, but I went back as a guy and walked into a room as a deputy chief, and I walked out as a captain. Uh, as uh, a, a lot of the command staff was pretty much in the same boat. They went back to their civil service rank. Fortunately, I had made civil service rank a captain. So how many uh, how many people were in that room? How many command staff members? Nine, uh, and they were all deputy chief and above, all appointed yeah, ranks. Yeah, mm-hmm. deputy uh, and, one stars, two stars, and three stars. So it was pretty much everybody. Mm-hmm. And so he leaves, and all did you all open your? I, see, I heard a uh, story that you had to go into another room. Or, well, after you open your envelope, he called you into another room. Okay. He, he was sitting in that in oh, the chief's office. It was him and. Uh, Two brand new two-star chiefs had only been a, who had been a lieutenant an hour before. Only we didn't know they were two-star chiefs, but they were. And uh, it was uh, you walk in the other room. He said he didn't say much. He goes, "Well, the letter speaks for itself. Uh, department's going in a different direction. See two new three-star chiefs, and they'll tell you what your assignment is." I'm going to tell you, part of that made me think that this is some kind of loyalty test, you know, just this is pretty Machiavellian, but maybe, you know, nothing's really happened to us. He's just trying to say, I left you, you all owe you rank to me because I could have done this. So I go in the other room and the uh, two two star chiefs, uh, two, three star chiefs are standing there, new ones. And uh, they said, oh, yeah, boy, they couldn't even look me in the eye. That's what was really, because one of them I'd worked with at Southwest. I said, oh, yeah, uh, Doug, uh, uh, looks like you're going to Southeast. I said, why Southeast? Why not back to SWAT? I mean, am, am I a captain, really? And he said, yeah, you're a captain. I said, well, then why not send me back to SWAT? I said, the town, the city spent tens of thousands of taxpayers' money on training me and just send me back there. No, the chief wants you removed from your power base, which was a really, really odd statement. And I went, okay, well, you got to report out to the quartermaster, turn in all your deputy chief stuff, and uh, go pick up captain stuff on a Saturday, Saturday morning. It's pouring down rain outside. Go pick up all your captain stuff, and you report the southeast on uh, uh, Monday morning. Take the weekend to clean out your office. And I said, so that's how it is. And they said, oh, yeah, but look at the bright side. Uh, Because you're in patrol, you get to keep your car. And I went, well, I guess that's a silver lining, but I'm I'm not quite sure what that's worth. I went out to Southeast, but I I enjoyed the troops out there. I I was out there when you came back out there. They were really, really good troops, you know, doing what they could. I didn't have a problem with the citizens. Uh, we doing what we could. We were in the new station on Jim Miller Road. It was new new to me. I'd been at the old one down there on Bear Street. It was pretty pretty nice station, but uh, some of the stuff that happened during the intervening eight nine months was odd. Well, surrealistic, especially when we discovered out he asked the uh, city attorneys what he really wanted to do was fire all of us. But they said, "Nah, some of them have some civil service protection to the." prior deal so and we don't even think that's going to work so but you know you can try that but you can't fire him so he busied himself uh, 
in my opinion, trying to do what he could to drive us off or, um, or fire us. So I was out there. My uh, one-star chief, I got along with great. She was fine. She'd been a lieutenant the day before. But I had no, I had no personal animosities against these other people. My animosity was directed at one individual, yeah. the mastermind behind all this. And uh, she called me in one day, and she said, um, well, there's a little more background to that story. It involved a disciplinary case. And uh, uh, I went in on the disciplinary case and uh, obviously uh, let, let something out of the bag that the chief's office was hiding from uh, uh, the city manager's office. I didn't know it. Nobody told me. Wouldn't have mattered. I'd have let the cat out of the bag anyway. But um, uh, right after that, I got called in by my boss, who couldn't look me in the eye, and said, uh, "I just came back from a staff meeting downtown." And I said, "Yeah, what's that?" She goes, "You know, um, you pretty much run the station. You know what you're doing. I do the political and uh, and the grip and grinning stuff. And uh, you know, you you're doing a good job out here. And uh, you never laid down." You could have, but you never laid down. You keep coming to work every day and doing the best you can. I appreciate that. And you're pretty much running the place. I do the political stuff and the grip and grins. I said, yeah. And she goes, he's transferring you to the property room. <laughs> and that was kind of my reaction. I, I, I initially laughed. I said, no, everything he's done so far, and it, it sounds funny at first, but he follows through. I said, I'm going to the property room. She said, uh, yeah. And I can't stop it. I tried to, and I can't stop it. And I said, oh, I say, I said, I promise you, I will never serve a day in the property room. And she goes, you can't change his mind. And I said, I have other options. And uh, she goes, really? And I said, yeah. I said, I've never taken a sick leave, in tw sick leave day in 23 years on the Dallas Police Department. But I feel something really bad coming on right now. Yeah. <laughs> but I still never took a sick leave day. So it was amazing. Uh, what had happened was... Uh, Charlie Cato, Charles was my uh, administrative sergeant out there at Southeast, and he didn't he didn't like any of this stuff that happened, and he he would always call me chief, and I'd say Charlie, don't you know I understand what you're doing, but some of these other people are going to get real mad when, and a lot of the SWAT guys still called me chief when I, when they saw me. I said, hey, don't get yourself in trouble. This place is really strange now. But he came in one day, and he, he tossed me a piece of paper. He goes, you know, I want to get the hell out of here. He goes, I, I can't, Chief, I can't abide by any of this stuff that's going on. He said, I'm trying to get out. I'm looking for a job. He goes, I don't meet these qualifications. You do. And he threw the papers on my desk. That's exactly how it happened. And I said, okay, well, put them there, Charlie. I'm, I'm working. I was also the, the station's crime analyst because they had taken ours away. They were doing all kinds of things to make us fail. And so I was, uh, I, I had become the crime analyst. So I was, I said, yeah, I'm working on this, Charlie, trying to figure out what we need to do. There's a lot of church burglaries going on. And he said, and I, I tossed it over the side. I said, I'll look at it later. He picked it up and threw it right in front of me. He goes, no, blankety blank, you know, um, you need to fill that out now. <laughs> and I said, Charlie, I ain't got time. I'm working on this. He goes, no, the deadline's tomorrow. You got to fill it in. And uh, I said, well, what is it? And he said, it's, um, uh, they're looking looking for a chief up in uh, McKinney. You need to fill that out. And I said, "What?" He goes, "I'm not leaving your office till you fill out that." I said, "Okay." So I filled out the paperwork, and that's kind of how it happened. I said, "Yeah, I used to do the police rodeo. I think we drove through McKinney a few times, but 
But it was a, the, my last, like I tell everybody, I spent 23 years in the Dallas Police Department. The first 22 years and three months were great. The last nine months were surrealistic. And the only way to really survive mentally and emotionally and was, was to leave because I was convinced if I went to the property room that A, I would be fired, and B, they would look for a reason to indict me. Because we all knew at that time, hopefully it's changed. The property room used to be over here on Baylor Street. It's still there. And it was a sieve, and stuff was always missing. And I felt like I'd walk in, sit at the desk, and they go, here's your inventory, here's your desk, here's your chair, here's your phone, here's your inventory. Oh, and by the way, here's the allegations against you because you've been in charge for five minutes, and uh, we think there's stuff missing. And I said, I'm, I, I'm just not up for that game. I, I called Ben Click. I said, Ben, I love the Dallas Police Department. I don't want to leave. I think I can outlive this current administration. And he said, I'm going to tell you something. If you don't get out now, you'll never get out. You'll be stuck. And he, he, he will destroy your reputation. And, and you may end up in prison he goes right now it's going to be hard for you to get a job because you've quote unquote you get you have to explain something you have to explain why you were demoted and he said that's going to be difficult but if you not only demoted you went from a field operation to an evidence room he said that's that's not going to float with anybody then they're not even going to give you a second look so i kept going through the process at mckinney and uh i kept thinking there's there's no way I am going to be selected because there was other chiefs of police going for it and everything. But it's kind of funny how karma steps in, you know, and I was thinking maybe I wouldn't even take the Well, they're not going to offer it to me, but if they do, I probably won't take the job. You know, I can, I can outlive this administration, you know, karma steps in, in that I become one of the two finalists, the city, the director of public safety, who's also commissioned as the police chief, contacts two people that he knows to say, hey, what's going on in Dallas? And tell me about this guy. And the one guy is his cousin. His cousin is David McCoy, who was uh, a sergeant up in narcotics when I was up there. Great guy. And uh, David talks me up. Then he's uh, this director of public safety at the Texas Police Chiefs Association uh, conference that year. And he runs into another guy that is the chief of Kerrville. And he says, uh, his name is John Young. And he says, hey, John, did you ever work for this guy? Well, I, I worked with John on like four different assignments. And he said, that's your man. So that's when I knew I, karma is setting in. There's, there's, there's a message here that I really need to take this job if they offer it to me. Because David called me and then John called me and uh, they finally did offer me the job, and I said, I, I, I think the handwriting's on the wall. It's time to go. So it killed me. Uh, I, I still have very, very strong feelings about, about being here. Uh, at one point, I tried to come back, and I was one of the finalists for chief of police. And I think that was uh, when Terrell had uh, met his demise, and they got rid of him. Unfortunately, Ted Benavides was still the town manager, city mm -hmm. manager. And uh, he took the list of eight finalists that were presented to him by the headhunters. He threw three of us off and then added in, uh, I think, seven of his own. So uh, I was one of the people thrown off. 
I guess they get hard feelings when they, you know, you sue them and you win. But I yeah, <laughs> yeah it's, that was always the the rep. If you sue, yeah, you're done. Yeah, you're not coming back. You're not going to get promoted. You're you're going to be at the property room. We we, we offered Ted a, a sweetheart deal when he met with all the demotees in in our lawsuit. They came in. We were having a binding arbitration. The the uh, sweetheart deal was this: return us all to our prior ranks. We fix our pension uh, contributions and uh, uh, return us all to our prior assignments, and uh, we'll do that. And he said, oh, well, I think all that's doable. said, there's one last condition. Terrell Bolton cannot be the chief of police because he will find a way to get rid of us. And Ted dug his heel, heels in over that, that, one, that one proviso. He said, no. So $12 million later, the uh, – the city separated. That was a $12 million decision right there. And, and then Ted, ironically, ends up having to fire Terrell. So, the, Karma. I, yeah, it really was. It, it really was. Uh, it, the whole, even when I talk about the situation, it's just, it's just it, it brings us some real bad memories for me. There's some post-traumatic stress disorder that yeah, I haven't, sure. haven't walked, lived, walked through, talked through. But uh, uh Sometimes it's even hard for me to come down here. And I come down all the time for uh, Scottish Rite Cathedral down here in the Scottish Rite Hospital. You know, I always think of what could have been. And what you've given this city. I, Physically and emotionally, what yeah, you've poured I, into this city. I, I, I felt like I did. I, and they promoted all these other people. I actually lived in the city. I, I, I went by that old code, you know, if you're going to get promoted and uh, you want to take home car, then you need to live in the city, by God. So I... I bought a house out in the Southwest District, and uh, which is a, another odd story. I can go on and on how evil that hostile takeover was. Uh, I, I was lived in Southwest, so they assigned me to Southeast, but that was okay. I really didn't want to work for the deputy chief they put out there. I didn't mind driving on I-20. But the guy they assigned to Southwest, I won't mention his name because of some health issues here. But anyway, he, uh, he contacted me, and he goes, told me what his health issues were, and he, he had to go and get some treatment every day. And he said, you know, I, I got to go from – I live in Mesquite. I got to go from Mesquite all the way over to Southwest. And you're going to go from Southwest, come almost all the way over to Mesquite. Can we swap? And I said, I really don't want to work for the guy at Southwest. Right. And, and then that's when he revealed his health issues. And I said, well – and I'd worked for him twice. And I said, well, yeah, that being the conditions, I, I, I'll work the swap. You know, and and so he said, I'll contact the chief's office. It was the man's health, a man who dedicated decades to the city, and they told him no. Told him no. And I mean, and they said, if you want, we'll put you on deep nights. He'd been demoted to captain. Now they said, well, if it interferes with your treatments, we'll put you on. You can work evenings or deep nights. But you're going to continue to drive. I mean, those those are all the little signals that kept coming through on everything. It's just it was it well, was it, a bad time. It was just a cloud. It, it was. It, it affected every it affected everybody, and it did not end well. No. Uh, so you get to McKinney, and under your watch, that city and that department tripled. Can you can you talk about t- well, first taking over a department? And then watching that growth and how you juggled that kind of growth with city department, the training, how, how you how that all how you made that happen. 
Yeah, when I first got there, they just released the official census population from 2000, and it was 54,000 people. I think McKinney's probably up over 200 now, but when I ceased being their chief, they uh, they tripled. So they were about 165,000. The department had 67 officers, handful of civilians that were dispatchers. We were uh, near the town square, which was, if you're not familiar with McKinney Town Square now, it's it's a historic square. It's thriving. When I got there, it was pretty much all boarded up. It was uh, in the in the old courthouse in the center of the square was a boarded up pigeon coop. That's where the pigeons lived. But uh, <laughs> it it was interesting though. It was you know really low crime. Uh, when crime happened, uh, we pretty much knew who the bad guys were. The officers were that good. They it was like neighborhood policing. They all knew who their bad guys were, and when stuff happened, it was all local. And they were pretty pretty good about making arrests quickly and clearing crimes and recovering property. Um, but the place was poised to grow. They were going to get a lot of residential growth. They were going to get a lot of commercial growth. And uh, it was coming and coming fast. Uh, 121 now, Sam Rayburn Tollway. Yep. When I got there, it was a two-laner separated by a double yellow line. One lane going southwest and the other lane coming northeast. But that that's how small it was. So it was good it was quaint it was neighborhood policing to a certain extent i was reminded of again back back to the 60s back to the future it reminded me of a uh, uh, one of my favorite shows the andy griffith show i mean mm-hmm. it was like it like was Mayberry. small yeah it was small time and um but it started growing started growing rapidly we tried to keep pace with that um one of the things that we did have to do because we didn't have enough money to send folks to the uh, academy I mean, and as you all know, that can that's rolling the dice because you don't know if they're going to make it through the academy after this investment. And if they make it through the academy, you don't know if they're going to make it in field training. So it's a major investment of time, money and effort. And you don't know if those people are going to uh, make it. So uh, we were hiring officers who were and recruiting officers who were already uh, licensed. And uh, we had to make sure uh, we weren't that we were doing thorough background investigations and we weren't getting uh, gypsy cops. And uh, one of the things that we did have to do was, and it took a lot of work, it was between uh, police, fire, city hall, and, and the two associations, the police association and the fire association. We had to get separated from the, uh, what was then the pay for performance that all the city employees were on and get it to a step pay plan. And we worked it real hard, and, and and we got it to that. And that made us competitive with a whole lot of the other departments. So we started attracting uh, other folks. They knew, hey, this place is growing. And that was our pitch. Come here. Get in on the ground floor. Because in, in, uh, shortly in, in your career, you know, the people that are getting in now, they'll be the deputy chiefs, the assistant chiefs 10 years from now. And pretty much that was absolutely true. And uh, – uh, one of the guys I hired, Scott Brewer, I hired him. He came from uh, SMU Police Department, and he worked his way through the ranks in McKinney, and he made it up to deputy chief. And uh, because of seniority and everything, he's kind of boxed in there, but uh, guess what? I found myself looking for an assistant chief over in Prosper, and uh, he applied, and he's my assistant chief now. So... Uh, in rapid growth communities, that's the kind of advancement can get if that it, 
people can get if they're interested in vertical growth. There's also a lot of horizontal. Like if you're interested in specialized units, when you come in the door, you may be a patrol officer and there may not be anything there, but I'm going to guarantee you in about five years, we're going to have those specialized units. And and that's what happened. And we were able to recruit people with, with a competitive uh, step pay plan. The other thing we had to do was uh, they went for uh, – Civil service, state civil service, police and fire, it failed with the voters. However, uh, I will say mostly through the city manager, it was the guy who had been the police chief, and myself and the fire chief, a guy named Mark Wallace, another great guy. He, um, we were able to convince the council we need to get meet and confer. You don't like civil service? Let us get meet and confer. So uh, now they have meet and confer up there, and it is uh, they have a, a meet and confer agreement actually signed mm-hmm. I, i'm laughing because the, they said okay we we agreed to meet and confer but we don't have to agree we don't have to agree to agree anything and so it took us a couple of years working with the council of that's true but you know if you, you don't want another civil service vote the civil service vote was very divisive the meet and confer agreement was not and so now they have a a, a binding agreement there so that was uh some of the things we did, uh, we formed a mounted unit, uh, so to train our mounted unit, and I sent them to the best mounted unit I, I know, and that was right down here in Dallas. And uh, our guys got trained there. Our, uh, a lot of our SWAT guys up in McKinney, they got trained by Dallas SWAT guys. Uh, you know, I'm, uh, I'm not the sharpest knife in the drawer or the uh, brightest crayon you know uh, but uh, if I have any talent it's to recognize talent in other people and uh, surround myself with good people I always have and uh, you know I go back to the well I I know what works and what's good and what's great and I go back to those people and ask uh, hey help me out I need some help well police since the 70s you've seen so much change it is incredible yeah and culture yes in in tactics mm-hmm. and in leadership um i read that you uh you assisted in writing a a uh a research book for perf yes. on, on conflict of, right, uh, of rights and, and mm-hmm. policing protest uh what are your views on that topic yeah it's really interesting so uh we were assigned all the different protests, pretty much that came down the pike here in Dallas. Uh, you know, we had the PETA group. Uh, we had the uh, the, the Operation Rescue. Yes, yeah. I'm trying to find the right word to call every them. Every Saturday. I, I don't want every Saturday. I don't want to call them the yeah. pro-life movement because everybody is pro-life. is not Operation Rescue. And everybody that's Operation Rescue is not a lamb of Christ. So but, any any protest group... This kind of reflects back on recent history, back to January 6th. Anytime you have a large protest group, you're going to attract the full spectrum. So, uh, and that's what we saw. We had PETA. We had the uh, uh, Operation Rescue pro-life protests. We had uh, we had the Warriors and John Wally Price uh, repeatedly up at Northwest Northeast, Northeast Station and then several other stations. Uh, I'm trying to think of other pro. <laughs> Uh, there was a strike at, I think it was the UPS place that we got. Yeah, on Monroe? Yeah. yeah, we had to go up there and monitor a strike. So we got thrown on a lot of things. Over the course of time, uh, I'll say there was, there was great people that preceded me in SWAT before I got there. Uh, I mentioned Dwight Walker earlier. Eddie Walt is another captain that was there, another great guy. 
he, he was also a narcotics captain for a while. So, and I worked for him there. Um, but they had a, a pretty long, distinguished background in, in protests. And so there was a lot of things that we were doing because we knew them inherently and we trained on them. But, but then we started writing this stuff down and drawing up policies and procedures and how we're going to handle it because we knew with a lot of these protests – we had to be supplemented by patrol. And while we may know these things inherently, when we bring other people in to supplement us, the emergency response teams I've already mentioned uh, kind of goes back to the uh, 1984 Republican National Convention. I was one of the supplemental teams, my sergeant, and I got to pick eight guys to come in and supplement a SWAT for dignitary protection and crowd control. And that's what really initially got me really interested in SWAT. Also, we did the same thing for World Cup soccer in 1994. So we started memorializing everything we were doing. Um, the summer of protests for the Operation Rescue People, uh, the year before they came to Dallas, they were up in uh, Wichita, Kansas. And the police department in Wichita, Wichita, Kansas did, I think there was a handful of uh, women's clinics up there. Yeah. So I just said, look, these people are coming here. They're going to protest for a week. They're going to go away. Why don't you all take the week off? You all just close up, have vacation, enjoy the, enjoy the summer for a week and go away. That sounds like a great strategy unless you realize the other side's strategy. And that's what we would always do. We would, When we had crowd control issues, we were always studying the vision, the mission, the goals of the other side. And then we could figure out this strategy and tactics. So Wichita PD uh, didn't have any experience with that. They didn't do that. So to the Operation Rescue people, they said, we shut down the clinics for a week. We're going to stay. And one week became two. And two weeks became three. And then the clinics say, we got to go open back up. And when they went to open up, Folks were laying all over the streets, blocking entrances. The doctors couldn't get there. The nurses couldn't get there. The patients couldn't get there. And Operation Rescue pretty much declared the whole operation a success. They said for an entire, I think it eventually ended up to be like six or eight weeks, they had shut down the clinics, women's clinics in Wichita, Kansas. And uh, the local director of Operation Rescue uh, became the national director of Operation Rescue. So he decided the next year we're going to do Dallas because we had like nine clinics. Mm -hmm. So we got really supplemented by uh, um, patrol. We put together our own strategy and, you know, tactics. And uh, one, one of the things, and I, I met with them repeatedly, and I kept seeing this one thing. A lot of departments had gone to pain compliance techniques on the pro-life protesters, the Operation Rescue protesters. But if you study them, these people can tolerate a lot of pain. And we saw photos, videos, as we were collecting it, of places where they were like using nunchuck sticks to wrap it around somebody's arm and lift them up. And they would have frail old ladies or young kids and arms were getting broken and you were getting compound fractures. And that's not what the police department really wants to do to begin with, and it is really looks terrible when you see yeah. the video and it makes the news. So we met with them, and we came up with this idea of lifting carry teams. So uh, they'd have cover officers, and we, depending on the size of the protester, there'd be two big, bulky SWAT guys with back harnesses on, and we'd lift them and carry them into the into the paddy wagon if they didn't move. If they were a larger size, we'd put three or four 
officers on them. So we started working with that, and uh, because what we realized was the pro-life people want to go out. You have your First Amendment freedoms. You want to go out and protest in front of the clinics, and we, and that's what we'd always tell them, we know why you're here. We will protect your right of First Amendment to protest and let your views be known. On the other side of the coin, we're in the middle. There's private property interests. Uh, these clinics are legally open. Uh, they're open by law. You cannot invade the clinic. You cannot go in there. You cannot criminally trespass. If you do, we will, and you refuse to leave, we'll have to arrest you. Their strategy was they wanted to be arrested. The longer they stayed in the clinic, the more it was shut down. And so that's why they wouldn't get up, they wouldn't walk, they just lay down. And so we found a humane way to get them out of there with the lift and carry teams. We drew up all these procedures, we did training videos, and it got on CBS ION, ION CBS. It was some show that they ran uh, of our summer of how we handled the protest. They only stayed a week, and we were actually ahead of each protest. When they showed up, we were in place, and they couldn't, they couldn't invade the clinics. And uh, I'd like to tell you how we did that. They thought we had about a thousand officers assigned to the SWAT team, but uh, we used the mobile field force, and we just had our way of knowing where they were going. And I know you cops can figure out how we did that. So, yep. the uh, uh, that's what we did. We got there in advance with mobile field force style. We go co code red light siren, get to the next clinic, and j uh, jump out and bail out, and we were there and and, and keep it going. Anyway, that made it on CBS News, and PERF, the Police Executive Research Forum, saw that, and they saw what a couple of other cities were doing, and Dallas was kind of one of the main ones, uh, and I got assigned to that project by the chief's office, and uh, they eventually put together a, uh, a book. There's an executive summary on and on. This, this is how it was their book and their papers specifically on abortion protests, but actually... It was the same thing we applied to every protest. The only thing that was different was the lift and carry teams. But if we had another protest where the people would just lay and not move, we'd probably lift them and carry them too. Well, protest and, and large gatherings, isn't it's not going to go away anytime soon. No. And, and that's something we're going to be dealing with for years. Right. Uh, and, and the aggression, aggression towards law enforcement is, uh, has increased mm -hmm. drastically. Wow. Your, your career is just it's it's incredible it's it's you can it's, do a it's, lot of things if you hang around for a long time yeah <laughs> almost nearly 50 years of policing welcome back ATL listeners we took a quick break we're back here with chief kowalski of prosper pd long tom dallas pd and mckinney pd chief you're now over the great city of prosper and you've got quite a few celebs living amongst you and that place is going to just grow and grow like frisco and like mckinney what's next for doug kowalski in prosper well we're going to continue to grow for a while uh we just moved into a new public safety facility um i went to before the council tuesday night and got approved another three hundred eighty thousand dollars to cover the parking lot so our fleet doesn't get destroyed in a hailstorm and uh right next door to us uh we're going to build that rest of the public safety campus 
uh, fire administration building and a new central fire station is going in. So we have 12 acres out there. When that gets completed, we're going to put in a joint training facility. So um, it's we're looking forward to all that. Uh, Prosper has grown has tripled since I've been there. So it went from 14,000 population when I got there in January 2014. The last census put us over 30,000. We're two years away from the last census, so we believe we're about 32,000. They believe at build-out there'll be probably 75 to 90,000 people living there, depending on the density, because we we are landlocked. We, we can't really annex a whole lot more. We're nine miles long and three miles north to south it's filling up fast yeah and uh, i just i just see uh, a lot of challenges for the police department because as they continue to attract different uh different businesses diff- different venues there uh you know uh, the tournament players golf course is going in not in prosper but in frisco which is right on the south side of 380 right across from us and i think that whole um corridor along the uh, dallas north parkway when that gets developed on both sides because it's mostly just fields right now i think i think we're probably going to see quite a few hotels go in and they can both be a boon and a challenge at the same time depending on uh, what kind of clientele they attract uh we do uh have quite a few hospitals there so what we're hoping is the uh niche is when there's not a uh tournament going on in the uh in the golf course that the uh, hospitals there, because a lot of them are children's hospitals, mm-hmm. and uh, family usually likes to come in and stay. That will will uh, fill them with uh, the parents of childrens that are being um, basically served in all the different hospitals that we that we have out there in that area. So, um, but we all know through experience what happens with hotels. Yes. So you currently serve on the board of. Uh MHMR provider. What is your opinion on officers' mental health and well-being? I think it's something that's been overlooked for a long time. Uh, I think officers, especially uh, depending on where their assignment is and particularly after a long career, I I believe we have officers suffering from uh, post-traumatic stress disorder also. And it's just never been diagnosed and never recognized earlier. I think that's why at, at some points, uh, alcoholism was high when I first joined policing. And prior to me joining policing, I, I, I think we've gone beyond that phase, although we do see isolated pockets of it. I think, uh, I think a lot of it has uh, to contribute to the high divorce rate among police officers because it's uh, you get isolated. You feel like nobody understands me. Nobody understands the stress. Nobody understands what I just saw, what I just went through. And you start internalizing all that, and then you're not communicating with anybody. So, And the suicide rate, it's finally something we're talking about, and the military is talking about. It's, it's very high. And officers just need to know that it's, the rest of us are out there. Just reach out and talk to talk to somebody talk to another officer we've all been down this road at some point in our career and there's other people that know about it and we'll talk talk to you about it and and get them the help that they need and it doesn't have to be uh you know it can be completely off the record you know you go get yourself some help you get an employee assistance program 
or you go through your own health care provider and go get the help you need, the counseling you need, because you don't need to bear that burden alone. We, we've all seen a lot, and it's I've seen some things that uh, I choke up about just thinking about them again, and uh, it's... I, I've been to some crime scenes that are really, really tough, and they stay with me. Uh, sometimes when I close my eyes at night to go to sleep, I see those people. And uh, it's sad. I mean, completely innocent victims who were murdered by someone for not that there is a good reason, but these were clearly for no reason at all. Just evil. Yes. Well, the Assessor Foundation, we have uh, confidential mental health counseling Excellent. and and we're seeing an uptick in officers finally breaking that stigma and coming forward and seeking out help and also as well as firefighters because they see horrific right they they're they're responding to horrific, horrific scenes daily yes. as well you're big in the community why is being involved in a community so important to you a couple of reasons uh Stated it earlier, I I left every everybody and everything I knew in New York to come down to the Dallas area and get this job. And all my friends, all my associations uh, are through the Dallas Police Department. Still are. I, you know, yes, I migrated out to McKinney, and yes, I've migrated from there to Prosper. But still, this is kind of the heart of all my connections. Those communities, still a lot of my connections, uh, and uh, it's important because. It keeps me grounded, and I think it's good for officers to get grounded. I I know like my first five years probably on the police department, the only people I knew were really police officers and their families. Not that there's anything wrong with that, but you kind of get into that little self-contained world of your own, and you don't uh, understand what other people are experiencing and seeing and and wanting from a police department. So I, I started getting involved in other organizations. The uh, the first one was uh, uh, Masons mm-hmm. and uh, Scottish Rite. And uh, it's a long story, but there was a uh, – I used to do the police rodeos, and one year I was the president of the actually two years I was president of the Dallas Police Rodeo Association, and we were raising money for the Shriners hospitals, and uh, <clears throat> we present the check to a couple of the Shriners in the chief's office and have one of those big you know presentation checks, and they were usually in the neighborhood of about twenty five thousand dollars after the Dallas rodeo, and um, thought it was great. And the second year I did it, I I said, hey. Uh, how does uh, how do you get to be a mason? And you know, it's just a couple of blocks from here, and if you, you see their sign says "Ask One to Be One." I didn't know that then, and they said, "Up, oh, you, well, you just asked the magic question. Have you ever been to the Scottish Rite Hospital here in, in Dallas?" And I said, "No, I have not." And they said, "Well, why don't you sign up and go on a tour?" So I went on, on that tour, and I was just amazed at all of the outstanding work that is done for children in that hospital. And, uh, you know, the only, uh, it doesn't cost the parents a dime. If you have insurance, they'll take the insurance. But there's no deductibles, anything like that. But if you're dirt rich, uh, dirt poor or filthy rich, they will treat your children. If you have insurance, great. If you don't, don't worry about it. Their main goal is to retreat the people. And they, they do amazing things with uh, uh scoliosis uh 
really amazing things with um, uh, prosthetics. Uh, they also have a dyslexia uh, service in there. And I was amazed when I found out it really wasn't costing the parents anything. People need to know that it doesn't matter what the race, sex, religion of, of the patient is. It's just, can, can we help this child? We admit anybody into the hospital that we can help. And then the, the doctors are volunteering their services and all the other people that are working in there are volunteering their services. And the Masons are raising money to keep the building running. And I went, wow, this is really amazing. And so I joined up and... Uh, I joined up, uh, actually, I initially joined the East Dallas Lodge, 1200, which was known as the Police Lodge, and uh, still is. And, yeah, I was still hanging around a lot of uh, police officers. But from there, I started making all these other networks with all these other people in uh, in masonry. And um, also uh, Blue Lodge Masons, Scottish Rice Masons, there's York Rite, there's Shriners. And I started meeting all these other people, and it really brought in my horizons that – it's not just good guys and bad guys, you know. It's not us against them, the cops against the rest of them. There's a whole lot of good people out here, and they're all doing good and trying to get uh, do things for the people that really have a need. And uh, children, you know, pulls my heartstrings every time. So uh, it kept me grounded, had me uh, get network and make contacts with a whole lot of other good people in the community to trying to make things better for everybody, which is ultimately what police officers do. That's the whole reason we all became police officers, we help people and try and make a better place for everybody. So that kind of goes on with some of my community service. The, uh, I'm currently the chairman uh, of the board of trustees for uh, the MHMR provider for Collin County. It does business as life path systems and what first got me interested in that was uh back when i was the chief of mckinney we had a couple of individuals <laughs> you know it's it's the same story that every every police officer knows you have the repeat person that we keep having to deal with on police calls we're continually having to inject them in either the criminal justice system or into the mental health system and it's it's, it's just a frequent flyer. It, we're not getting long-term permanent solutions. And so uh, I got real interested in what we were doing in Collin County and uh, was initially appointed to the board uh, by one of the county judges. And since then, uh, this last year, I've been made the uh, chairman of the board. But they do some really outstanding work. And the main reason is uh, it's people who need help. Uh, they're the least among us who need the most help. And uh, we just, if we can do something to get them the help they need where it's not from the police department and not from the criminal justice system, I, I, I think that's the direction we need to start moving in. Uh, it's just, I've, I've seen so many, so many horror stories with these folks with mental health issues, whether it be, uh, some kind of assaultive behavior, some kind of family violence, uh, suicide. You know, we're, we're taking them into custody uh, for uh, uh, emergency detention order. But it seems like they go in for psychiatric observation and come right out. And Or if we put them in for a criminal act that they've just committed, then suddenly the county jail becomes the mental health provider. And they're not equipped to do that either. And if they get convicted, then they end up in the prison system. And 
maybe all this can be avoided if we get people the help they need. And it's uh, it seems to me the right thing to do. And it seems to me uh, it's also, if you look at it from the other side, the ec- most economical thing to do is rather than incarcerating people. And uh, I don't know. I just I just think this is the route now. Unfortunately, police officers get injected into these systems, uh, into these uh, calls all the time. And if we, but it's usually the same person. I'm just wondering, this is me thinking out loud. I'm wondering if we can get the people the help they need. Maybe it won't be the police that are the ones that have to be the uh, intervening with them. And we'll have a whole lot better outcomes. In in the middle of a call for service, though, uh, that may not be the time. I also... I also am a realist. I know when the th- when there's a meltdown going on and somebody calls the police, the police are going to show up and do the best they can. We all have mental health training right now, but it's uh, we do the best we can do. Chief, I'm hearing from New York to Dallas to McKinney to Prosper, a dedication to service, and you can continue to serve. And I but imagine you're going to do that until you're no longer here. I hope so. I I just I I enjoy it. I still have the uh, the fire in the belly. I still like uh, police work. I still love police officers. I, I think we're all out there doing God's work. Uh, I think firemen are doing the same thing. You know, we used to have the joke about uh, waking up firemen, but once uh, firemen took over a, a EMS service. Those guys are running all the time too, so they're pretty busy. So um, I don't know. I guess I guess I saw it. I'll go back to my family, my upbringing. We we were close knit, nuclear family. My my father, my mother, my brother, and my my dad was really dedicated to public service. He was a veteran of World War II, combat infantry veteran, served in the Pacific. Uh, liberated the Philippines, part of the Army of Occupation of Japan. Came back. Met my mom. They got married. Had two kids. He became a fireman. Did that for thirty-one years, and he had a servant's heart. He uh, he really did. And and my mom had a servant's heart also. Same way with my uncles. And uh, the extended family was all still pretty pretty tight knit. We for a while there, we all lived on Staten Island. We all cousins and everybody all always played with each other. It was a close knit family. And uh, I I don't know. That's just the way I was raised. It's it's uh, ingrained in me to serve i at some point i'm blessed with good health right now but at some point i'm physically not going to be able to do uh a policeman's job i've I've made a deal to myself for the benefit of everyone else that if i physically can't do the job of a police officer that's that's the day i need to retire and uh if i do well then i'll probably just exclusively teach because i'm going to leave you with another quote and that's from uh, uh mark twain and he's, you know, some people say, I must have a lot of good judgment to get to where I'm at. And Mark Twain said, yeah, good judgment comes from experience. And experience comes from bad judgment. So uh, I've survived a lot, of, a lot of judgments, good and bad, and I'm still here. And I just like to share that with uh, officers, people I meet, uh, talk about it. Uh, I'm just really amazed that I don't know how I think we're coming out of it now, but we're not out completely out of it but i think people are starting to see that yes police work is a noble profession 
And everybody in police work is really good people. Oh, we have a few outliers, just like every other profession. And we usually separate ourselves pretty quickly from those individuals because we're also very good at policing ourselves. But overall, the vast majority of officers are, are good people. It's a, it's a noble profession. We're taking care of the good people out there who want us. And they want us to do our job and protect them from the evil that's out there. And everybody in this room has seen the evil. We've seen it, and uh, we know that we're that thin blue line between the good citizens who've never seen it and we're that thin blue line that keeps them from seeing and experiencing that pure evil out there. And I, uh, I really admire everybody puts on a badge and a gun and goes forward every day to do a job because those, those are heroes. I mean— just that act alone makes them a hero. Chief, I think that's a great way to wrap it up. I want to thank you for your service for the city of Dallas, city of McKinney, Prosper. And you say you, you're going to go into teaching again, more service, and teaching other citizens, professionals, how to make themselves better. Right. That's what it's all about, right? Right. And I am uh, really want to continue instructing to police officers. Uh, I'm in that Carruth Police Institute, and uh, I instruct in the Institute for Law Enforcement Administration and also in the police academies because, like I said, I just I like to share some of the experiences I've seen. So, you know, good, bad, or ugly, the people learn from the good and avoid the bad and try not to repeat the ugly. We have to learn from experience. Yes. Thank you for your service. Thank you. I want to thank special guest, Lieutenant Bob Owens, for coming on. Thank you. I love it. And uh, just like to say to Doug, I worked for him, with him a couple of times and for him a couple of times, and it was a great pleasure. You're a great leader. And, you know, we when you leave, you know, you kind of – I was talking about this, especially with you because you've been gone so long, which I didn't realize, but you still make an impact, you know, and there's people uh, that – you know, right now they're senior, but they also, what they learn from you, they pass on to people that are, didn't even know who you were. Right. And so well, you I'm made an impact that. on people that don't even know your name, but through your training, uh, it, it made things better. And, and never, didn't, never doubt that, that you made an impression on this police department and a lot of officers, like I said, including me and a lot of young ones. So thank you for that. Again, thank you for your service. Thank you. Thanks, Chief, for coming out. Appreciate your time. Thank you. Thank you, sir.